Oh, hello, friends. Before we uh, get to the sponsors, uh, comedy dates coming up this Friday, which is July 10th. I'm at the MGM, the Ka Theater at the MGM, with Tom Segura and Tony Hinchcliffe. July 24th, I'm at the Chicago Theater with Brian motherfucking Callen. Uh... August 29th, I'm at the Moody Theater in Austin, Texas. Yeehaw, bitches. And then September 18th and 19th, I'm in Canada. 18th is at the Orpheum in Vancouver. And 19th, I am at the Southern Alberta Jubilee Auditorium in Calgary. That is just about sold out. Um, And uh, as soon as there's no more tickets available, I'm going to add a second show. What else? October 2nd, House of Blues in Houston, Texas. First show sold out. Second show, there's a few tickets available. And then on the 16th of October, I'm at the Balboa in uh, San Diego. And that's almost sold out as well. So get on it, freak bitches. Um, that's it for comedy dates. And of course, I'm always in town. Uh, if you're in Los Angeles, I'm always at the Comedy Store. Uh, we do a lot of shows at the Ice House, on, especially on Wednesday nights. As a matter of fact, this Wednesday night, we got a fucking crazy show down there. One of the craziest shows we've ever done. Russell Peters, uh, Greg Fitzsimmons, Ian Edwards, Neil Brennan, and Tom Segura. Jesus fucking Christ, man. You don't get, Or woman. You don't get a better show. And I'm in on, on that. I'm on that show too. Um, that's Wednesday night, and that's almost sold out too. It'll be sold out any minute now. Might it might already be. Sorry if it is. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my favorite motherfucking underwear, which is me undies. I got them on right now. It's basically what I wear all the time, unless I fuck up and don't do laundry. Because they're my favorite underwear. They literally are my favorite underwear, and I hate when people say literally, but I said it. Uh, technology applied to underwear. What does it do? They just made better cloth and better fit and better design. They're great fitting. And uh, it's two times softer than cotton, whatever the fuck they make them out of. Um, MeUndies.com. Go to MeUndies.com and they have the most comfortable underwear you'll ever try on. They fit perfectly and they actually pull moisture away from your junk. And the quality that you get from MeUndies would typically retail for two times the me undies price but they don't have a retail middleman so you save some cash and here's how you do it go to meundies.com forward slash rogan and you will get 20 percent off your first order and low flat rate international shipping you save even more when you buy a pack of them and uh, me undies is not just for guys they have launched their all of me woman's collection a four-piece line of undies specifically designed for the female body Ooh-wee. But to get that 20% off, you have to go to MeUndies.com forward slash Rogan. That's MeUndies.com forward slash Rogan. We're also brought to you by NatureBox, the official snack provider of the Rogan experience. I love NatureBox snacks. Uh, I'm a huge fan. No bullshit. No need to hype it up. They're just yummy and delicious. And as far as snacks go... Pretty goddamn good for you. They have no... Actually, they're taking... The, the, they just made an announcement yesterday. I think the FDA is going to ban trans fats. Trans fats... There was a story on trans fats that, um, that I read yesterday that trans fats actually show a, like a significant 
like a statistically significant decrease in memory uh, amongst men who uh, eat trans fats on a regular basis. Really interesting. And then apparently they, they believe the same holds true for women. Point being, NatureBox has no fucking trans fats. They also have no artificial flavors, no artificial colors, no artificial sweeteners, and no high fructose corn syrup. And best of all, they taste fantastic. Uh, so much better for you than any of that shit you're ever going to get from a vending machine that has candy and crap in it. Um, really yummy stuff. My favorites are uh, sriracha cashews, which I talk about all the time. Uh, peanut butter nom noms. Those are goddamn delicious. Big Island pineapples. There's over a hundred different snacks to choose from. And, uh, they're, they're quite yummy. And if you go to naturebox.com forward slash Rogan, you can get a free trial of their favorite snacks, free snacks delivered to your door. What are you waiting for? See, they're tricky. They're like little crack dealers. They get you hooked, give you a taste, they give you a taste that free snack. Go to naturebox.com forward slash Rogan to become a NatureBox junkie today. Free snacks delivered to your door. Come on, you fucks. We are also brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is a fantastic way to make a professional-looking website. If you have struggled in the past with website designers or trying to use a program to create your own website on your own, you know what a goddamn nightmare it is to make a website. Squarespace has taken all the hassle out of that and made it a beautiful, seamless experience that has a really user-friendly drag-and-drop interface where if you can do standard shit on a computer, if you can attach a photograph to emails, you know how to click and drag, and if you know how to use a computer, you, you can make a website with Squarespace. It's fucking easy as shit. It's so easy that they don't even want you to pay for it before you use it. You sign up. You don't even have to enter your credit card. Just sign up and try it. That's how confident they are. And they're right. You'll do it. You'll realize. You go, oh, fuck. I can make a dope-ass website. And your website will look great on everything. It'll look great on a Windows computer. It'll look great on an iPhone. It looks great on everything. Uh, trusted by millions and some of the most respected brands in the world. And it starts at just 8 bucks a month. And you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, use the offer code Joe and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code Joe. Uh, commerce. Every website comes with a free online store. They also have a feature called Cover Pages. It's great. It allows you to set up a beautiful one-page online presence in minutes. So start a free trial with no credit card required and start building your website today but again when you decide to sign up for squarespace and if you need a website you will decide because it is really good make sure you use the offer code joe to get 10 percent off your first purchase squarespace.com my friends thank you squarespace for your support of this motherfucking podcast Ooh wee thanks also each and every week to on it got Dot com. I can't talk. What's going on over here? Oh, what happened to my, my, my tongue? Onnit.com. O-N-N-I-T. Onnit is a total human optimization website. If you have not been to Onnit in a while, uh, go there because we are constantly adding new products. Every time we find cool shit online, uh, every, every time we find cool uh, things that we wind up using, we find beneficial, whether it's new pieces of strength and conditioning equipment, uh, new foods like our Warrior Bar or the new Oat Mega Protein Bars. These are, I really like these. They're very yummy. And they're made with um, 
grass-fed whey protein. Uh, I'm a sucker for, but if it comes to any protein bars, I'm a sucker for these Warrior Bars. They're my all-time favorite. They're some of the most delicious snack bars you're ever going to try in your life. Super healthy for you. Uh, all made with organic buffalo meat. No antibiotics. No added hormones. Gluten-free. Ooh. And uh, more importantly, super nutritious. 14 grams of protein, 140 calories, 4 grams of fat per 2-ounce servings. It's just one thing, uh, one example of what Onnit is about. What we're trying to do is provide you with all the tools to improve the way your body works, the way your mind works, whether it's your mind through things like Alpha Brain, the cognitive enhancing nootropic supplement, or whether it's through our fantastic line of strength and conditioning equipment, including the Primal Bells, which is all kettlebells that are artistic versions of the great apes functioned uh, fashioned rather into functional kettlebells, beautiful functional kettlebells, including the new Bigfoot kettlebell, 92 pounds of thunder. Mm. Mm. Uh, they look cool in the last a fucking thousand years. The, when the aliens land, thousand years from now, they're going to find kettlebells that are shaped like gorillas and not know what the fuck was going on. Go to onnit.com. Read the Onnit Academy link for inspiration. It's uh, free of charge, fantastic workouts, diet plans, um, uh, all sorts of groovy shit, all of it free. And there's actually a real Onnit Academy if you live in Austin, Texas. Uh, I know someone who just moved to Austin, Texas just to work out at the Onnit Academy. I don't know if I'd recommend that, but Onnit's, I mean, pretty fucking badass place, and Austin's a pretty fucking badass place too. Go there and check it out, you fucks. Onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T. Use the code word Rogan and you will save 10% off any and all supplements. My guest today, friends, is a man named John Ronson. And John, I've been really excited to talk to him, looking forward to it for quite a while. He's a journalist, an author, a documentary filmmaker, and radio presenter from England. Uh, you might know uh, his work. Uh, he wrote uh, The Men Who Stare at Goats, which was turned into a movie. And he's done some really in in incredible documentaries for the BBC and had a great time talking to him. Really smart, really cool guy and uh, a fascinating conversation. And I hope we get to do more of these. So without any further ado, please welcome Mr. John Ronson. Joe Rogan Podcast, check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night. All right, we're live. John Ronson, how are you, fellow? Hey, how are you? Thanks for doing this, man. Appreciate no, it. No, I'm glad. I, I can't tell you the number of people have said you should do Joe Rogan. The number of people have said, oh, my God, Joe Rogan's talking about Bohemian Grove, or Joe Rogan's <laughs> talking about psychopaths. You have to come on. Well, I'm friends with Alex Jones, and Alex <laughs> Jones told me many, many, many years ago uh, that they're burning effigies in Bohemian Grove. They're worshipping Molech, the owl god. <laughs> Well, I went to Bohemian Grove with Alex Jones. Oh, that's, that's about that's like going to Disneyland with Mickey Mouse. Yeah, it was kind of my it was kind of my idea. I, I sometimes feel like the kind of Simon. Like, I mean, this isn't strictly speaking true, but I kind of sometimes feel a little bit like Alex Jones is Simon Cowell because before because this is like way back in the mid mid to late nineties when he was like really famous in in Austin, but kind of not that well known outside. Right, and I was working. With this producer, John Sargent. Basically, we, we, we noticed something, which was that a lot of people on, on the fringes, um, that Islamic fundamentalists and neo-Nazis and militia people, were all had this one thing in common, which was they were all conspiracy theorists. They all believed in you know, the evil power of Bilderberg and Bohemian Grove. 
Um, so I thought it'd be good to try and infiltrate those places. Um, but I didn't want to infiltrate Bohemian Grove alone because, frankly, I was scared. So <laughs> we'd met Alex Jones when he was rebuilding David Koresh's church at Waco, and he seemed kind of gung-ho. He was rebuilding David Koresh's church? Yeah, that was the first time I met Alex Jones. I went there with Randy Weaver. Uh, I, I became friends with the Weaver family. Um, Who are the Weavers again? They're, they're Ruby Ridge, you know, the, oh, right. fam- yes, yeah, okay. the family of white right. separatists. And so I got really friendly with Randy's daughter, Rachel, and then I went with Randy to, to Waco. And Alex Jones, there was this kind of crazy man at Waco, and I was like, who the fuck is that? What year was this? This was about nine, probably 90, 98, maybe. That's 90. when I met him. Yeah. Yeah, I met him in 98. Uh-huh. Yeah. He was, yeah, he was amazing. I mean, I, I could tell, like, I drove <laughs> through Austin with him. And, like, he went to buy a new suit because he was, like, you know, giving a big talk at Waco. And, like, yeah, everybody, in the, <laughs> everybody in the clothing store was, like, excited because Alex Jones had walked in. And so I knew it was, like, a big deal in, in the neighborhood. But, but then... Um, but then I wanted somebody to sneak into Bohemian Grove with. And I asked David Icke first. I said, can we go into Bohemian Grove? And he was like, no, that's where they transform themselves back into giant lizards. Uh, did he tell you that for real? Yeah. He said he really did. Yeah. He said that's where they transform themselves back into He's lizards. kind of abandoned all that, hasn't he? Yeah. He gets mad if you bring it up. <laughs> Does he? Yeah. Which you can't. You can't get mad, man. You, 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 get yeah, a, you made a lot of speeches yeah. saying that people transform into lizards. Yeah. You got to own up to that shit. God, I hope he said those exact <laughs> words. I mean, this is going back a long time. He said words. He, he certainly strongly implied that he believed that that it was at Bohemian Grove that, that they transformed themselves. Well, he, I lizards. think you're in the clear because he gave many, many interviews where he talked about that. <laughs> that was a, a big... Well, it was kind of in the early days of the internet when you can get away with saying stupid shit like that, and mm-hmm. you didn't have a bunch of people on Reddit that immediately could debunk you or Twitter or Facebook, yeah. where they just knew something that you didn't know, and like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. They transform into lizards. Get the fuck out of here, dude. <laughs> well, one of his, his big uh, like piece of evidence that Bohemian Grove was where they transformed themselves into lizards was because of this woman called Kathy O'Brien, who, who said that she was a kidnapped sex slave uh, and that she would be like let loose into the gardens of the White House, and George Bush Senior would like hunt her, and that was oh, like his sex God. game. And so she wrote this book about this called um, it was called something like the Crisis of Democracy. It was called the Transformation of America, and she said it was at Bohemian Grove. She was a kidnapped sex slave at Bohemian Grove, and you know that's where it all happened. And and she was like, and Bohemian Grove was all based around this. Um, this this river and the Russian River and and so on. So that's where the Bohemian Grove rumors first started with with, with Kathy O'Brien. That's hilarious. Yeah, and um, so I thought, like, it can't be true that like George Bush and Henry Kissinger all go to this club and on the Saturday night they all put on robes and have a mock human sacrifice in front of a giant stone owl. I thought that can't be true. So I phoned up David Icke and I said, do you want to come, you want to come with me? And he's like, no. And then I thought, well, remember that crazy, that, you know, a guy we met at Waco, Alex Jones, maybe we should ask him. So I called up Alex Jones and I said, do you, do you fancy trying to get into Bohemian Grove? <laughs> and he was like, he was like, yeah, I'm going to get a camera. We'll, we'll get a hidden camera. We'll get in there. We'll get it right in their faces, those devil worshippers. And we'll confront them going about their globalist devil worshipping evil. So that was the video. He made a video about this. So you were yeah. in, involved in that. Yeah, I was, oh, I was okay. in this video. Okay, now um, I remember you. Okay. Yeah. I remember you in that. This yeah. is a long time ago. Long yeah. time ago. Um, 
We so we all went there. We all went to Bohemian Grove. It was me and my producer, my cameraman, and then Alex and Alex's wife Violet and and his friend Mike. There was like six of us, and we were like strange <laughs> bedfellows because <laughs> I just thought, oh, this will be fun. Wow. And Alex and Alex was like, you know, well, at one point I said to Alex, like, have you got like a contingency plan? Like, if we manage to get in, and and like you're you know you're uncovered. Have you got a contingency plan? And Alex said, yes. And I said, what is it? He said, I'll say to them, don't get any closer. And I'm like, that's your contingency plan? Don't get any That's like a threat. And Alex is going, yep. So his, he was just going to scare them? Yeah, he was going to Don't get yell, any closer? That's it? Don't get any closer. That was Alex's yeah, plan. He, I don't think he thinks that far ahead. No. Oh, shit. That's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> he had this, but he they had really this. did put on robes yeah and they really do have like a bundle of sticks that's supposed to represent a human being mm. and they carried it out there and oh, light it yeah. on fire I, I saw it all with my own eyes we, but do they say that it represents a human being like what no they? what what they say um is that it represents dull care like all the troubles in the world oh. like all these men of wealth and power have all these troubles in the world i gotta say it was weird white people problems yeah. boy that's real first world problems yeah one percent are first world problems. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We. Uh, you How know, funny is that though? All ruling the, rich the world people. is a pain in the ass for two weeks a year. You we'll... guys have so much stress. Yeah. We need to burn a fake person to make you feel better. <laughs> right. God, you guys, just, it's so hard being a billionaire. God, how do you do it? How do you run the world? Until it was weird, though. So Alex, Alex's plan, I and mean, this is how we were going to get in. We were going to rent a boat and like sail it along the river and then get out and then climb up the mountain and then get down the other side and then get in that way. And I was thinking, this is, a, this is an ill-conceived plan. <laughs> and, um, and, and then we met this local lawyer called Rick. He was like this preppy lawyer who lived in the town, uh, Monte Rio, or Occidental. And Rick had, had been and he'd infiltrated Bohemian Grove just because, like, everybody in the town wants to know what's going on in, in Bohemian Grove. So we met Rick to get some tips on how to break in. And Alex told Rick his plan. And Rick said, look, if you're going that way, you're going to get yourself killed. And Alex wrote down, this was my favorite, one of my favorite bits of the whole weekend. Alex wrote down on his notepad, going in that way, dash killed. <laughs> <laughs> So Rick said, no, what you need to do is like go to Eddie Bauer and get yourself some preppy clothes and just walk up the drive. Just walk up the drive. Mm, that's a smart move. Yeah. So Alex was like really torn because part of him, he admitted this to me afterwards, part of him was worried that like in The Wicker Man, me and Rick and all these other people that we'd met were all part of this kind of elaborate plan to lure Alex into the forest and like he would be oh, the one sacrificing. Oh, that's him. so rich. Yeah, he said that <laughs> it, had, it had crossed his mind. <laughs> so the upshot was that Alex and Mike decided to go in separately to me and Rick. Oh, yeah. So he didn't trust you that much. No, he didn't trust. He, I well, mean, he, he didn't. They know didn't have me. Wikipedia back then. He couldn't just Google you or anything, right? He couldn't he, Google me. Um, did he know of your work? Did he know who you were? Not, not really. I, I, I wasn't particularly well known back then. I, I, I wasn't really well known. Is at it all safe to say then. that Alex Jones helped launch you? We kind of helped launch each other <laughs> <laughs> that night. And so um, you, you guys went in there, and yeah. Alex gave me this on VHS tape, by the way, back mm -hmm. in. 
99 or whatever the hell you guys, you guys actually made a tape out of it. Yeah. Alex and I did this thing. I did a special in Austin. Um, my first DVD I filmed in Austin, and Alex and I dressed up as the Bushes. I was George Bush uh, Jr., and he was senior, and we ran around the... The, the state capitol with like these uh, bush masks on. And we I've seen that video. Did Alex have a big bullhorn saying that they were all like Satanist globalists? Um, at one point in time, definitely, but I don't know if that made it into the video. But we, we he actually sang a song. There's actually a song. I don't know if we've ever played the song. It's so ridiculous. Alex Jones wrote a song about like the uh, the elite. And it has it was on the video. It was on the video, and we're all like dancing around to Alex's Jones song in the in the. Right. <laughs> so fucking stupid. So this is ninety nine, right? Uh, ninety nine or maybe two. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, there he is. What does he say? We'll put the headphones on. You hear what he's saying? I remember. Put, put, put it back to the beginning so we can hear. <laughs> Oh, that's me doing bong hits. But we sure as hell don't. Live, ladies and gentlemen, from the belly of the beast. Crashing through the lies and disinformation. No compromise. One day closer to victory. It's Joe Rogan, baby. Oh, shit, I broke the mask. <laughs> this is his song. <laughs> Moloch and Friends. Oh, my God. So this is all. This is the same time, right? Yeah. You know, I, I feel like I nurtured Alex's interest in Moloch by suggesting Bohemian Grove. Yeah. So as a possible I, location. I was wearing a Style Project T-shirt. You remember Style Project? Right. Styleproject.com. That's Alex Jones singing. Wrote it all too, by the way. It had nothing to do with this. Right. <laughs> oh my god, it was so stupid. Six 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 on Bush's head. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So this is. It was the only time I ever met Alex. So that that weekend in. Um, That's the only time you've ever well, met him. That and Waco. You know, Waco first, and then that. I lost touch with him after that. He 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 recon. He liked me again actually after I wrote the Manistee Goats. Like he didn't like me after I wrote my book Them, which includes all the stuff about Bohem- sneaking into Bohemian Grove because uh-huh. he thought I was too much of a debunker of Bohemian Grove. But then when I wrote the Manistee Goats, he liked me again because he felt that I was like. It's kind of like a bit of a... The Minnesota Goats is kind of like a conspiracy book in a way. Right. Yeah. So... um, How much different is it than... Should we keep going with this Bohemian Grove? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel there's more to say. Okay. Uh, So Alex and Mike decided to go in via the undergrowth. Like I I saw them... um, So they went in through the bushes? They went in through the bushes. uh, And there was a lot of poison oak around there. (laughs) I I wouldn't be at all surprised. You guys just walked in. Yeah. Me and Rick, the lawyer, this kind of preppy... Lawyer. Um, oh, I'll tell you the funniest thing that I've, that I've missed out of this story was was the night before we were going to infiltrate. 
um, Alex and Mike decided to practice being preppy, um, <laughs> and so they were walking up and down. They were walking up and down like the corridor outside their motel room, um, talking in a kind of effeminate way about microprocessors, like you know, I, I just uh, nanotechnology is the future. No, <laughs> yeah. that's how they thought preppies talk. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh. Uh, uh, so um, and then so then they went in through the undergrowth, and me and, and Rick, the lawyer went up the drive, um, actually with, with our producer, John Sargent. And, and just as Rick said, you know, we gave the security guard a kind of I rule the world type wave. Um, we dressed, dressed preppy and we were in. Act like you know. That's yeah. what Ice-T used to say. Yeah. When they used to rob things, Ice-T used to say, just act like you know. Act like you know what you're doing. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, we walked in. And there was this bank, my memory is, okay, there's this big bank of telephones. This was like before cell phones. Well, I guess there were cell phones, but... Very few, right? Yeah, very few. There was a big bank of telephones. And then there were all these camps. It was like a giant redwood forest. Um, And then there were all these little camps everywhere. And all the camps, sure enough, had weird, like almost devilly kind of milieu like little red, like I remember one of the camps was called like Devil Eyes or something, and there was like little red eyes, you know, poking out of the thing. It was like kind of Halloween type, right. type shit. And then some of the camps had like grand pianos and hot tubs, and there were all these old men, all of whom looked like, you know, Mr. Burns, um, <laughs> sort of in, in like little trucks going up and down. Um, and Like so, golf carts? Yeah, sort of more like posh pickup trucks if okay. I rightly. like the kind of stuff you'd get like like at Universal Studio Tours okay. or something and uh, and then we saw and there's like all this owl stuff everywhere now the reason now this some conspiracy theorists get really annoyed with what I'm about to say um, mm. is that because everybody really loves the idea that like they're worshipping Moloch the giant devil owl but uh, the reason why as far as I could tell there are all these like owl sculptures everywhere is because like it's an owl sanctuary like there's little cabins with like stuffed owls in there it's like an owl sanctuary so um well wait a minute there's there's it's an owl sanctuary like they actually take care of owls uh, or I think no? there's, or, or like an owl preservation area like this is a place where owls nest Oh. No owl expert. Okay. So this is the place. Well, that was if you were worshiping an owl god, though, wouldn't that be a cool place to make your sanctuary where the owls actually nest? I, well, I guess so. Unless so you can't totally debunk yeah. it, there, Mister Ronson. Well, that's true. And although, wouldn't like if you're worshiping a giant owl god, wouldn't all the regular sized owls be like false gods? I mean, I'm I'm busking mm, this. Maybe, yeah. or you know, I don't know if you have like a. A great monkey god, and the monkeys lived around where the great monkey god lived. You'd feel like they worshipped the monkey. Yeah, god. like they were Maybe the, the owls like the worshipped Moloch. Okay, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Still, nonetheless, um, <laughs> the minions. Yeah. <laughs> to the despicable me, I can tell you have children. <laughs> <laughs> so we we were wandering around, me and Rick, um, and we saw this giant, the giant owl, right, um, of of everybody's legend. Um, it's funny, I, I remember thinking it was stone, but then a few years later, somebody else infiltrated Bohemian Grove for some magazine and said it's not stone, it's like plaster of Paris or huh. wood or something. But, but, and I'm sure they're right. But you guys were far away from it? I, th- I, I remember it's going like all the way up to it. So is there a security guard? Like when you walk down... There was one guy sitting in a little hut. 
And he didn't ask you anything? Didn't ask Nothing. anything. He you just said, like, enjoy, enjoy right. your evening or something. And where is Bohemian Grove again? What state? Uh, it's in Northern California. It's, it's next to this little town called Occidental. There's like a no-through road, and then you go up the road. Uh, is kind that of north Napa. of San Francisco? Yeah. North of Napa. North of Napa. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and um, I remember seeing Alex and Mike. And I was like, hey, it's Alex and Mike. Hey. And then they walked past, and they said, keep walking. There's owls everywhere. <laughs> There's cameras in the trees. There's and owls everywhere? Yeah, there's owls. Mike said, there's owls everywhere. Did they see owls? I mean, they're talking about like owl owls or? Well, I think at this point, Mike was convinced that every time they saw an owl, it was like, you know, it was Moloch related. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. So so I mean, what were you thinking at this point? Were you thinking, what the fuck have I got myself into? <laughs> hanging out with these guys. They're going to ruin my whole investigation. Well, no, I mean, I was nervous um, because, you know. Um, the closer you can get to this microphone, the better. Too, oh. Because we don't have our headsets on. Okay, sure. So Yeah, I was kind of, I was nervous. Um, but I sort of thought it was kind of fun. I felt safe with Rick, the lawyer. I felt like nothing bad would happen to me because he looked so rich and preppy oh, and that's like every horror movie where things go bad you're hanging out with rick the lawyer yeah <laughs> i thought i'd be fine with rick the lawyer yeah but so then the bell rings like gets to dusk and there's a ringing of the bell and if all these old men like drift down to this little pond and they all sit on like grass one side of the pond and, and alex and mike are there like a few rows behind us and there's the giant owl on the other side of the pond. Um, I remember, actually, this moment, which I thought was really weird, was this old man comes up to me. I mean, I, this is like nearly 20 years ago, so I don't remember like all of the details. But but this old man came up to me and said something like, like I was way younger than everybody else there. And this, and this guy says to me, is this your first time? And I said, yeah. I said, oh, you're going to love it. Uh, burn him, burn him. And I did the sort of impression of what was about to happen in the, in, the, in the pageant. And there was this look of like real fucking intensity on this guy's face. And at that moment, I thought to myself, like, there's Alex and Mike, like a few rows behind me, convinced that this is like evidence that the global elite are blood drinking Satanists. <laughs> and then there's all these like men of wealth and power who are really fucking into it all themselves. And, I, and they might be into it in a different way to the way Alex and Mike are into it, but they're fucking into it. And I felt I'm the only sane person in this entire <laughs> fucking Redwood What post. about Rick the lawyer? And Rick, me and Rick. We're the only sane people. I wonder if attendants dropped off in that place once they invented Viagra. <laughs> you know, because like rich old dudes, they couldn't get it up. There's not a lot to do. You get bored. Yeah, it was it was a weird way to spend your summer vacation. <laughs> I, I didn't see any like famous oh. people, but at one point we passed this like display cabinet, and there were the names of the guests like on the in in the display cabinet, and I remember seeing Dick Cheney's name. Oh yeah, for sure. That yeah. guy that's probably gets his extra hearts. Yeah. Have you ever? Uh, <laughs> there's a photo of I think it's Ronald Reagan at Bohemian Grove. Yeah, it with might Nixon, be with Nixon. Right? Yeah. 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 Have so, you seen that? Pull that up, Jamie, because it's a crazy photo. Yeah. So this has been like a, a weird spot where these guys have gone. For really- decades. Well, since I guess since like the railroad came through San Francisco, like, like you know, the turn of the 20th century, I, I, I think that's pretty much when it started. Right? Who the fuck started this? Yeah, there he is. There's Nixon. There's Reagan. Yeah. Who started this thing? And look at the big redwood behind him. It's a majestic tree. Yeah. Okay, what I what I heard, and as I say, it's been like twenty years since I've 
you know, thought about this stuff too much because once I put it in them, I kind of forgot about it. But, but, but the story I heard was that when the railroad was coming through San Francisco, all the rich white Republicans, and unlike Bilderberg, this is a very Republican club, uh, thought, you know, fuck, there goes the neighbourhood. You know, we're going to lose our elite status. We need to set up a private club for ourselves. So they set up the Bohemian Club in San Francisco and then Bohemian Grove in, you know, a couple of hours north. Uh, so then this this ritual starts. Um, this You see that a man wearing lederhosen appears in like a stage cut out of the giant redwood and he's got like leaves all over his lederhosen it's like leaf covered lederhosen <laughs> and he starts singing this like song and and the symphony's there like the San Francisco symphony well there's a video of it pull 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 a video of it Alex yeah. Jones at Bohemian Grove yeah. cuz Alex Alex was a few rows behind us and he was filming it all like with a camera that had toppled over 45 degrees in his in his bag and yeah, he filmed the whole thing. Yeah, he did it like on a sneak tip. Yeah. Oh, did he film as early as like like the pre-show Lederhosen? I don't know. It's, right. It's an hour and a half long. I mean, if I know Alex, <laughs> yeah. If I know Alex, he filmed everything and put everything out. Um, see if you can find just some dude in a robe in front of a giant well, fucking owl. Yeah. That's what it looks like. Yeah, see okay. how it's, it's toppled over sideways? Yeah. Yeah. Go, so go full a, screen. Maybe we'll get a better look at it here. I'm a few rows in front. Yeah. So then this happens. All these men in, in robes and hoods <laughs> all descend um, in front of the giant owl. Uh, there you go. And they, uh, and they have this ritual where, where this papier-mâché effigy like, comes over on the pond um, in a gondola and they say to it, you know, we shall burn ye tonight, uh, dull care. And then the voice of Dolka goes, "Ye shall not burn me." Um, and then they go, "Year after year, there's the owl. Year after year, in this happy grove, we burn thee." Um, and then they lift it up and throw it in the fire, and the and the effigy goes, "Ah!" Like that. And it makes noises. Yeah. Ah! Do they have like a speaker system it's or something? Yes, these are the speakers. And there's oh. a what you can't see in the video is that there's an orchestra uh, to your left. I mean, fuck knows where the guy in the leaf-covered lederhosen's gone at this juncture, <laughs> but he was on. He was like basically sitting on a giant redwood. Tree. He's getting sodomized by Nixon and Dick Cheney. <laughs> yeah, Ronald Reagan's coaching him. There's probably about a thousand people um, in that crowd, the other side of the pond. Wow! When the fireworks go off, you get like a glimpse of how many people there are. There's probably a thousand people. Wow. Um, now, what are the requirements? Like, how do you get in there? You get invited. I, I met um, Harry <laughs> Shearer, um, who got invited. Harry Shearer from The Simpsons? The yes. voice guy? He was the only person who'd been to Bohemian Grove who was willing to, like, talk about it to me, like, after we left. Wow. And he said he was invited to, these were his words, he said he was invited to Jew the place up. Like, there weren't enough <laughs> Jews there. So... <laughs> Uh, and he hilarious. said he thought it was kind of ridiculous. And, but he agreed with my interpretation of it, which is basically that it's not evidence that the secret rulers of the world are actually um, Satanists who do actual human sacrifice, which is basically the way Alex was, was spinning it. But it's this kind of weird, overblown pageant. Um, what, what I think is really interesting, and I think this is where Skull and Bones comes into it, is that there is this weird proclivity amongst the elites to create these ancient ceremonies for themselves. And none of them are actually ancient. They're all only, what, like 100 years old at the most. Right. 
But they're doing that for a reason, right? They want to create this kind of Masonic, ritualistic, mm-hmm. you know, milieu for themselves. And I think there's a weird psychology going on there. Because, I mean, you and me, we wouldn't. Well, I mean, I wouldn't. You wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. Yeah. But I, I might. I would have to be really fucked up to do it. I'd yeah. have to be under the influence of a lot of different things. <laughs> but <clears throat> the uh, the idea behind it, I guess, is that you you get closer if you're all doing this ridiculous shit together that somehow or another through tradition or through uh, ritual that you you bond? Is you bond and, and maybe it gives you a kind of mandate to be in an elite. I, I sometimes wonder whether... Like at Skull and Bones too. It's not just about bonding, but it's also about creating this kind of specialness for yourself. Right, right, right. Yeah, that gives you a sort of you know doesn't make you feel so so uh, insecure about the idea that you're a global elitist who's ruling the world. Wasn't that a thing about Skull and Bones as well? They were saying that part of the ritual, they do like really humiliating shit to each other and they film it so that they always have this. Like the Scientologists. Yes. Maybe. Yeah, um, maybe. Yeah. I've, yeah, Allegedly. I've heard, <laughs> I've, I've heard that, but I, but I, but I don't know if, if that's true, but, but I've heard that. Well, young Jamie was saying that Tom Cruise might be leaving Scientology. Is there any evidence to support this? I don't know. I'll look, I'll look at it, but Star, Star Magazine does. Well, that's yeah. about as good as it gets, buddy. That'd be good. Going clear has a lot of power. I think it could oh, yeah. end the movement. Well, it, it certainly did. I mean, it mm. exposed. It, it, well, what it all deals with, I think, with this this Bohemian Grove thing and mm. is this sort of uh, cultish mindsets, these weird sort of mindsets where they engage in otherwise preposterous rituals that to the outsider, like to us, like mm. we're watching this owl god and a fucking bundle of sticks and burn thee. Yeah. You're like, this is so fucking stupid. But to those people, it represents this thing that they've all kind of agreed to do this goofy shit together. And there's some weird power in that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's, it's definitely there for a reason. Well, it exists in so many different cultures, that's the weirdest part about it. It's like mm-hmm. you go back to like the Aztecs and the Maya. Like they would, when they would make these human sacrifices, they would wear these crazy outfits and mm-hmm. plumed headdresses, and it was all this like yeah. in a time well, where it was, in the ISIS cans yeah. too, right? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. But it's bizarre the, the out when people start wearing outfits and engaging in rituals. You know, mm. that's that, that's a weird aspect of human behavior that seems to be really prevalent. Mm. It's like it's not like an isolated incident where there's only this, you know, like if you go to Africa and you see like uh, or Asia or, you know, you see like these people that have those those things that extend their neck, those little mm. bars those women put They're like, God, what are they doing? Well, it's, it's very isolated. Yeah. It's only like one group of people that do it or the, the women that put the plates, the, the Suri women that put the plates in their lips. Like, what the fuck is that? Yeah. But, but doesn't catch on. doesn't go anywhere else. Like bizarre ritual, but it's only isolate this one very specific area. But rituals themselves, like really wacky dresses and weird things that people do, it's it's so common. It's it's almost like every culture has them. And the people involved. Um, by the way, when my book then came out, the Bohemian Club made a statement. I remember about my book. What did they say? They said something along the lines of, despite 
John Ronson's objectionable trespassing. We appreciate the fact that he's putting a less kind of sensationalist spin on what he saw than what Alex Jones did. And so they kind of appreciated the fact that I was I was being less hysterical about it than Alex. And they said, you know, it's it's overblown it's an overblown pageant, but it couldn't be more innocent or something along those lines. They wrote it that could, letter to a squire magazine. By the way, it could definitely be more innocent. <laughs> I mean, look, <laughs> the Mickey Mouse parade at Disneyland is also an overblown pageant. Uh, that could not be more innocent. It's not. That's really l- literally as innocent as things get. Yeah. What? <laughs> Bohemian but, Grove could be way more innocent. You're, you're burning someone. Like, and you're saying, I burn thee, and then you have screams that play out over a loudspeaker. That's not innocent. That's wacky as fuck. Like, it's hard to just, just stating the facts, it would be really hard to soften that up. Yeah. You yeah. know, like saying that you have an over-sensationalized version of it, like, what? that's not possible. Like, it's really sensational. <laughs> Although saying that, I definitely had some truck. This is why me and Alex fell out, because I felt what we saw was bizarre enough without having to put a a spin on it. What was Alex's spin? Alex's spin was practically that, you know, it's possible that they were killing an actual baby. I mean, Alex, (laughs) I can't remember if Alex went that far, but he went went a long way. Oh, and at one point he said, uh, at one point he said (sighs) to me, uh, yeah, we overheard these two old men like when we were walking down the road. I mean, it's true that me and Alex were like separate during this, you know, but he said at one point we overheard these two old men going, yeah, we're going to get him elected. And I thought, like, I don't know that Alex didn't hear that, but that's, that's a bit fucking convenient. I thought that's exactly the thing Alex would want to hear at Bohemian Grove. Well, who knows what that conversation was about. You take something out of context like that. It could have been a total, complete joke. Yeah, it could have been elected to like the local shriners. It could have been anything. It could have been the Boy Scouts. I mean, who knows what the fuck they were talking about. Yeah. Like, Alex is one of those jump-to-conclusions, confirmation-biased characters that oftentimes has some really fascinating information. Mm. Uh, and as much as I admire about Alex, I mean... I think Me too. He's, he's a of, friend. Uh, he's, he's a good a, friend. He's, a, he's an extraordinary <clears throat> broadcaster. He's and, crazy. Mm. He's crazy. He's my friend. I'll tell you right now. He's out of his fucking mind. But he's right a lot of the time. I mean, the, one of the best pieces of work that Alex did was 911, The Road to Tyranny. And... In that, he exposed some stuff from news broadcasts that was really shocking about the use of agent provocateurs to, which I always thought was utter horseshit. And then it turns out, not only is it not horseshit, but it's standard operational procedure has been proven um, with this Occupy Wall Street crowd. They, they, they infiltrated the Occupy Wall Street group and did all kinds of crazy shit in the park. We're trying to get people to join them and then arrest them. And mm-hmm. what the agent provocateurs did during the WTO protest is they would um, they had these peaceful protests and they would come in dressed up in like all black and they had military issue boots and they were smashing windows and breaking things and then they gave an excuse for the cops to come in and close down the protest. Well, they literally set up a no protest zone where people couldn't go to work with WTO badges. They had a WTO badge with a, a line through it, like saying no WTO. They were literally telling them they couldn't go to work with that on. This is a no protest. Like a fucking pin, like which is completely against everything this country is supposed to stand for, right? And so these people were um, 
you know, they, these agent provocateurs were working for the government. And they, they literally came in to try to break up a, a peaceful protest by turning it violent. And then they were all held up in this one house. And Alex documented it all, not with his own news footage and his own reporting spin, but basically just using actual news stories and different uh, coverages by different local news stations and showed, like, what the fuck actually went on. These people were all released. These guys were all held up in a building somewhere and they negotiated their release. Someone did somehow. Okay. And, it, you know, at, at first I, I was really super skeptical because I was like, that sounds like nonsense. But then you, the more you peel away, the more you realize, oh, well, this is something that they've always done. Hmm. It's like a standard prison. Look, if you've got a bunch of people that are protesting and they're ruining your elite globalist fun, like the best way to do it if they're being peaceful is to have people that pretend to be amongst them start smashing things. Then you have an excuse to come in and arrest everybody. Hmm. And that's what they do. Man. So he, he, he had a really fascinating video on that, showing evidence of that being used before, that there's a bunch of tactics that are in place. It's not simply as innocent as that law enforcement is set up to enforce laws and to preserve peace. It's not. It's not. They, they do, do a bunch of creepy shit. Huh. And, you know, that, that's, that's unfortunate. But that's when you start talking about conspiracy theory. Well, that seems to be conspiracy fact. You know, it just seems to be something that's standard operational procedure when they can get away with it. Uh, what I'm hoping is that with all this WikiLeaks shit and all this Edward Snowden stuff and all the, the, the new details that have been revealed about the NSA and, and what we know now about security and the Internet and the cloud and it's, everything can be hacked. Everything mm -hmm. can be compromised. I'm hoping that all goes away because I'm hoping that it's just going to be way too transparent. Mm -hmm. But, you know. I don't know. But Alex Jones thinks that they're, what they're trying to do is get down to 500,000 people. He's got this idea in his head. Yeah. They want to do kill everyone like, with 500,000 people. These really grandiose things he says like that, do you, do you think he really believes them? Or do you think he's like, like you know, he's trying to make something that's so huge that everyone's going to, like, draw themselves towards him? Um, he's not a liar. Um, he, he might go further with things than I would you know he might not have rational conclusions he might uh, approach things with confirmation bias but yeah. when you spend five hours a day on the fucking radio or whatever he does just going over wacky theories and selling gold gold and bonds and dried foods they got dried food keep the dried food in your basement <laughs> You know, it's uh, after a while, I think you lose your fucking mind. Yeah. You know, if you work at a strip club, you, you get sick of hookers. You get sick of working with strippers. You know, if you're, you're selling drugs all day, the last thing you want to do is take drugs. Yeah. I think Alex is like inundated with conspiracy. It's like he's overwhelmed. Uh, you, know, you probably can't see the forest for the trees. Yeah. It's just all chaos to him. It's all everybody's in on it. So the global elite, people are turning into reptiles left and right, burning owls, babies, whatever they can. <laughs> I don't know, man. Yeah. I, I don't. I mean, you'd have to ask. I I love the guy, though. He's a great guy. Mm. I love hanging out with him. He's a lot of fun. We had we we <laughs> got on better again, as I said, after the Minister at Goats came out because he really he liked that book. Right. And then, and then he had me on his show, and then like all of his listeners said I was a shill for the uh, New World Order. I think I'm a shill too. Sometimes they yeah. say that. Depends. Depends on what I say. Yeah. When I was talking about chemtrails, then they got really mad at me. Right. Joe Rogan's a shill. I debunk chemtrails. I de okay. 
didn't even debunk. I just it's fucking science. I mean, it's like real simple science behind what happens when a jet engine passes through condensation in the atmosphere. Right. It's like it's been they've known about it for fucking ever. This idea that they're spraying clouds like what the fuck, man, and that they're controlling you with these clouds. But when I did this uh, sci-fi show. We talked about it, and you know, I brought in aviation specialists, and I talked to different scientists, and I talked to a bunch of different people about it. And you know, what we decided to print was, or we, we decided to uh, show on the television show. Unfortunately, you're dealing with 44 minutes of TV for an hour. You know, you got a bunch of different commercials, so you kind of you don't spend. I think to really debunk something like that, you'd have to kind of like spend a long time with it and actually show people like actually get a jet up in the air and film it and show how this this plane mm. is actually leaving these clouds because it's passing through haze wouldn't be too hard to do if you had a really good budget but we didn't have a really good budget and it wouldn't be that entertaining mm. you know we had to make it like short little snippets which is like a real issue when you're dealing with any of those debunking shows is that they also have to be entertaining and they also have to fit within a format where they have to break every five minutes or whatever it is for commercials what is it seven minutes or something like that yeah. whatever the fuck they do you know they, they're constantly having commercials so it's like you have to have these little tiny chunks of information and it's really just entertainment yeah more than anything so you know I don't, I don't see myself as a debunker because i think um yeah what i saw at behaviorman grove for instance was was really it was odd there was a kind of intensity there mm -hmm. which which I, I believe is very different to what alex felt was going on but it was still <laughs> odd yeah well it's undeniably odd right mm. i mean it is odd yeah and uh, yeah and rituals exist for a reason and and what reason is that though I mean, I don't know for certain, but I but I would say it's this idea. You know, you know, we love to. Um, this is a bit of a non sequitur, but I know my my most recent book is this book about public shaming. Yes, called "So You've Been Publicly Shamed," and what I've noticed happens on Twitter is is we will we will reduce somebody to a label. We'll reduce somebody to the worst tweet that they ever wrote mm -hmm. we'll demonize them and then we'll dehumanize them because we've just destroyed somebody and we don't want to feel bad about destroying them so we call them like a sociopath or something it's, right. this, it's this whole like mental trick we play on ourselves uh like um what's it called cognitive dissonance this idea that we're good people but we've just destroyed somebody so how, how do we make sense of that or we just say or oh, whatever sociopath or something so it's all about it's all about labeling and reducing and and demonizing and destroying people that we don't like. And it's also about having an excuse to be a real asshole. Real asshole. Like, all you have to do is find a reason yeah. why you can unleash your fury on people. And it's a free shot. Yeah. It's a free shot because if John Ronson says something fucked up, there is a million people that could find out about that and they don't know you at all. And so they have a free shot. They've never met you. They're never going to meet you. Meet you. They live on another part of the planet and they could just mm, fuck, mm, fuck that guy. They could just start typing a bunch of shit. Yeah. And it's this weird thing going on where everybody's kidded themselves into believing that, you know, you can lead a good ethical life. Like, like I can lead a good ethical life, but some bad phraseology in a tweet or something can be a clue to our mm -hmm. secret inner evil. Yeah, what you're really all what about. What you're Trump really props. like, yeah. And I just wonder whether there's some kind of connection between... It's, it's about, you know, between that and about... Um, 
the rituals that you find at places like Bohemian Grove. And maybe the connection is that it's all about tricking yourself into believing that you can do evil shit. So like when you give yourself like a ritual at Skull and Bones or Bohemian Grove, that makes you feel, oh, I'm separate and different and better. And that gives me a mandate to rule the world. I can inflict this carnage on other people because I'm different to them. I'm better than them. And maybe on Twitter, we do the same thing in our own little ways, which is like, oh, well, you know, we're better than that person because that person just, just just misused their privilege or that person just just you know showed their true inner evil it's all about kind of it's mm. all about setting yourself apart from people so that you can behave in 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 ways that hurt other people and you don't have to feel bad about it maybe that's the connection well people have uh, a tendency to pile on it's always been the case that's the reason why you you see like when riots break out that that sort of exploits that type of pile on behavior. People will do things in large groups of chaotic moments, like a l- large groups of chaos, rather that w- they would never do with an individual. You know, as far as like assaulting people, or I mean, um, there's been instances where uh, gangs of people beat up and killed people, mm. and the people that were involved almost didn't feel responsible because they were one of many that stomped somebody or kicked somebody or yeah. ran over somebody. The snowflake doesn't need to feel responsible for the avalanche. Yeah, I yeah, guess. exactly. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. And I think diffusion of responsibility is a real issue with human beings when it comes to large numbers. Uh, anytime there's large numbers, they don't feel responsible for any repercussions or uh, of their actions. If there was only two people in the world and two people in the world, were, they had somehow or another invented Twitter and they were communicating with each other and one guy, uh, you know, uh, said something questionable and the, the other guy quoted him and said, John Ronson is a piece of shit. Here is proof. You know, fuck this guy. Let's shame him. Uh. What's this? Let's. There's only you. Yeah. You know, there's no one there. But you, what you're, they're trying to do is they're appealing to the bully instinct of people to just pile on. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm torn because sometimes I think publicly shaming people is a good thing. Like sure. in, in if it's some actual, ways, if it's actual social justice, if it's, if yes. it's actual right and wrongs. But the problem is, I think these days we're in this really bad situation where people have decided to not differentiate between a serious transgression and an unserious transgression. Very good point. So yes. some nice liberal person who tells a joke that comes out badly is treated with a similar level of ferocity as like a racist cop from the McKinney, Texas video. Well, most that's a very good way of putting it. I think most people are not living life even. They're going through life with a deficit. And they they started out with this deficit by having a bunch of fucking shitty experiences when they were children. They're shitty parents and bad time in school. And maybe they've been picked on and maybe their job sucks or maybe they have unfulfilled sexual expectations, whatever the fuck it is. Most people are going into any situation with a a headwind or a tailwind. I guess it is when someone's something behind you. Tailwind, right? Uh, Tailwind, right? Headwind is your trying. There's push behind them like like, accelerates their reaction to anything and they're almost looking for something that they can blame their bad feeling on they're almost looking for a target to unleash all their 
existential angst and frustration and life, uh, all their unfulfilled expectations, all of it is on John Ronson's shitty tweet. Yeah. You know? And I wish he stopped using me as like the kind of generic. I'm sorry. I'll just. Every time you say it, I think, fuck shit. Someone else. What shitty tweet? Um, But I've experienced it before. I've experienced it, but I found it adorable. I would retweet (laughs) people and stuff when they did it to me. But Well, I always liked it. I noticed because after my public shaming book came out, obviously, you know, a lot there was a lot of pushback and a lot of people went for me. And I always really liked it when people went for me in a kind of ridiculous way because yes. then I could retweet that one and it would make me look good. Uh, and it was one of my favorite one was um, all these people started like going for me. And one person wrote, why? And I wasn't, I just stayed completely silent. And one person wrote, why isn't John Rodson applying to any of us? And somebody else wrote, because John Rodson only replies to men. <laughs> and I'm like, Fuck. What does that mean? Yeah, I'm like honestly, like I'm like I'm part of well, some kind of. What were they upset at you for? Uh, um, s- well, okay, well, in that particular instance, <laughs> um, it all started with Justin Sacco. I, I wrote there's a chapter in my book that that defends Justin Sacco, who's the the AIDS tweet woman. Do you remember? Right on the plane. Listen, man, that lady is probably on Xanax and wine, and she said something that she thought was funny that would be funny if she was your friend. I like, would be funny if she. Well, I, if I'm she sure. was my friend and she t- if she sent that to me in a text message, I would fucking laugh. Yeah, you know, I'm going to Africa. Hope I don't get get AIDS. LOL. Just kidding. I'm white. Yeah, <laughs> and then the worst thing is then she gets on the plane. That's turns, funny. Yeah, she gets on the plane turns off her phone yes. and while she's asleep is like just torn to shreds by like For 16 hours yeah hundreds of thousands of people and one <laughs> of the most like extraordinary things about it is that her inability to explain herself became part of the hilarity that was that was the tailwind yeah. like yes. oh my god we know something she doesn't one person tweeted we're about to watch this justin sacco bitch get fired in real time before she even knows she's being fired wow. and i just can't think of anything more unjust than that so so i wrote this really passionate you know polemic defending her I think that you know we had gone crazy we'd lost our minds in this it was the most injudicial thing you could possibly think of yeah um and a lot of people as you can imagine kind of really objected to that of course yeah so I think but it's because they have the green light to object I mean it's not that you're not saying something reasonable I thought it was one of the most important stories I ever did because like for for 30 years I've been writing about abuses of power Mm -hmm. like in the psychopath test the abuses of power in the pharmaceutical industry or or you know the worst excesses of psychiatry or psychopaths or whatever but whatever the the people abusing their power are over there and whenever I like gave talks about that I'd like everyone would love it you know people would love it and then I write this new story this new book where I say you know what the people abusing our power now that they're us it's like we've suddenly got all this new power on Twitter and social media and we're massively abusing it and the pushback is ferocious well because the pushback is from the very people who enjoyed abusing this power yeah yeah i've been talking about this for a while and i think that what's going on now with with people and the internet and this this newfound ability to communicate that we find ourselves in uh, this newfound situation we find ourselves in where anyone instantaneously can comment on virtually anything that happens in the world and if what you say resonates or offends it can become a hot button and it just like gets all these ants just find the sugar and they just dive on it and they just swarm and it's almost like a mindless thing because 
I think that what we're experiencing is an adolescent stage of a new level of communication that human beings are experiencing. Yeah. I think that this new level of communication is starting off with the ability to just tweet at each other, and it's going to eventually go into some weird virtual reality place. Yeah. That's Unless when, people flee. You know, my friend a couple of, Yeah, a couple of years ago, my friend Adam Curtis. Cause I flip agree phones. With flip phones, oh. live in the desert, well, cut your own wood in the forest. Yeah, that kind of basically. Um, my friend Adam Curtis said to me, uh, who you'd love, by the way, if you don't know his stuff. He no, makes, I don't. Oh, God, you'd love him. He made um, The Power of Nightmares and The Century of the Self, these great doc- BBC documentaries. Oh, I've seen that. I've seen The Century of the Self. Yeah. Anyway, Adam said to me one time that, you know, he thinks that, that the internet or definitely social media is going to be like one of those John Carpenter movies from the 80s where everybody's yelling at each other and everyone's like killing each other and eventually everyone flees to somewhere safer like the suburbs and maybe that's and you know i noticed myself fleeing a bit from social media since my book came out yeah i i never i I, when a long time ago like maybe 10 years ago or so um i would argue with people online all the time and then i realized what an enormous waste of time it is also i realized that i'm not picking the people that i communicate with as opposed to the way you do it in real life. Mm. The way, and one of the things that I would do in real life is I would avoid anybody that starts arguments and is shitty all the time. Yeah. People who are insulting and shitty, I, would argue, I wouldn't argue with them. I would avoid them. But on the internet, I would like engage these people. You know, like, I'll get you. Yeah, you fucking loser, you know. Yeah. But uh, you realize after a while, like, oh, this is a new thing. And I'm applying to it like the sort of same strategy that I would apply to a heckler at a comedy club. Mm. And you really can't. Like yeah. This is a this is a totally new thing, and no one knows how to do it yet. It's just, it, we 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 don't have the benefit of hindsight to be able to step. You know, we're talking like two thousand, you know, two thousand one. We didn't have the benefit of stepping back and saying, "Well, this has been going on for a long time, and now we understand how to how to deal with people." Mm. But back then, we didn't. And I wasted a lot, a lot of time. Had some fun, but wasted a lot of time. And also, you you get emotionally charged up and invested in. These people that, in real life, you probably wouldn't want to hang out with them. Yeah, They're probably or, not or, the or maybe, nicest folks to be with. Yeah, or maybe they are, and, and just the internet is turning us into, you know, these mm. unempathetic, psychopathic figures. I mean, you know, maybe if you met them in real life, they'd be, they'd be sweet. Well, you wouldn't know them, first mm. of all, based on their tweets, because a, a tweet is one of the worst representations of you. Yeah, you it's, know? it has to be kind of extreme. 140 characters. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it can be poignant, sometimes it can be funny. But like to sum you up from uh, first of all, to sum you up by your writing is difficult enough as it is when you're writing chapters and paragraphs without any back and forth. It's hard because I don't think we are just who we are as an individual. I think we we are we are who we are based on who we're interacting with and how that works out. Like that's who you really are. Mm. That's one of the things that's so important about choosing your friends. Because your friends aren't just someone you enjoy. They kind of help define you. Mm. And when you have a bunch of really good friends and you, you communicate with them well and you get a lot out of it, it changes who you are. You become a better person. You can get, become a better person in a really good relationship. And you can become an awful person in a bad relationship. Mm. You know, I've been in bad relationships before where I didn't like me. I'm like, this person hates me. I don't even like me anymore. Like, what what the fuck is going on? And it's... Because we're, we, we like to think of ourselves as completely autonomous, but I don't think that's real. I don't think there's anybody that's really autonomous. I think we all need human beings, and we all, we, we all 
cherish human interaction. I mean, as much as you want privacy, you don't want it all the time. I mean, if you had to choose between no privacy or no people, I would take no privacy every time. Yeah. I like people. The people are great. You know, I, I don't want to be bothered all the time, and that's when people think the woods seem like a great idea. I'm just going to go Unabomber and just fucking live in the woods. But mm. No, you, you, don't, you don't want to do that. Like, we, we literally are a super organism. Mm -hmm. We are not like one individual experiencing the universe solely on our own. We're, we're all constantly interacting with each other. Yeah, which I think is part of the reason why so, why social media public shamings are so fucking traumatizing to somebody on the receiving end oh, of it. Oh, yeah, uh, Because sure. there's nothing, you know, to be, uh, to, be, to be ejected from society, to be told you're not as good as everybody else, just mm -hmm. get out, is like deeply traumatizing. But then the people doing the shaming, they don't want to think that. They don't want to think that they've just um, potentially done something intensely traumatizing mm -hmm. to another human being that like mangled up somebody's mental health so they just think oh i'm sure they're fine you right. know i'm sure they're fine that person we just showed i'm sure they're fine um you, um you know there's a guy uh who used to edit gorka who reviewed my book in one of the papers who basically said oh john Hudson's so sweet you know but it's fine you know if you if you're a man being publicly shamed it's fine it's no big deal they're just fine and then and i was looking at this i was thinking fucking oh you know i've i've gone around the world meeting these people they're not they are not fucking fine it's like whether you want to carry on doing it or not you have to accept they are not fine you know people well a few weeks after that guy wrote that review some guy in Israel who'd been falsely accused of being racist uh, committed suicide. Uh, you know, they're not fine. It's like you yeah. can carry on doing it if you want, but it's a really severe fucking punishment. Well, this mob mentality has existed throughout history. I mean, when you go back to uh, the punishing of the witches in Salem or, you know, what, what they do in Africa. Have you ever seen the, these, these witchcraft accusation things in Africa where one person will tell someone that someone's a witch and then everybody else in the, the tribe believes it and they're burning people alive. These are yeah. really disturbing videos. But it's like this pile on where I think part of what's going on is there's a real fear that that same thing could happen to them. Mm. And so they lash out at that one person like with, with real commitment so that they're Inexorably yeah, a part of the day. group. They're in that group. Yes, yeah. they're safe for that day. Yeah, because we can only handle destroying one person a night. Yes. In fact, I noticed with Justine Sacker, one person that night tweeted, somebody HIV positive should rape this bitch and then we'll find out if her skin colour protects her from AIDS. <gasps> and you know how many people went after that person? No one. Oh. It's like we were too, everyone was too excited about destroying Justine to simultaneously destroy somebody who was inappropriately destroying Justine. So that person got a fucking total free pass that night. Imagine the mindset <laughs> of someone to think that the best way to respond to someone's inappropriate joke yeah. is to rape them and give them an incurable, deadly disease. <laughs> and Justin... <laughs> and I, they feel totally justified uh, doing it. And Justin was asleep on a fucking plane. <laughs> and, everyone, and everyone knew that, and that's why everyone loved it oh. so much. Well, didn't she write a bunch of other ridiculous tweets? Like she, That was what well, she did. She, she was trying to be funny. Well, she was a tweeter. Yeah, I mean, there was a few. I, the yeah. one was I had a sex dream about an autistic kid last night. And then there was something about, you know, it's just stupid <laughs> shit. 
Yeah. Um, I bet she's fun to drink with. Yeah. Well, I had a couple of drinks. So she wasn't fun the first time because she was so fucking crushed. Oh, I bet it just God. a couple of weeks later. That probably took years off of her life, right? Oh, Jesus. Poor Justine. Um, the second time, was she okay? Better the second time. <laughs> and it took her a year. It was a year. She was basically... A year to recover. Yeah, she was basically fucked and in the wilderness for a year. <sighs> you know, wow. I noticed actually after my book came out, one of the pushbacks was like, um, well, you know, Justine Sacker's fine now. You know, she was only like unemployed and, you know, deeply traumatized for a year. And I'm like, for one fucking joke that lands one badly tweet. a year... You know? Oh, my so, God. Yeah. Well, but, that joke was representative of the hardest part. Yeah, exactly. That's just, this is what we fucking do. And yeah. it's such a lie. It's like we're all these fucking Miss Marples or all these amateur sleuths on social media thinking that we can spot somebody's true inner evil through mm. a little bit of phraseology. That's what happened to Trevor Noah. And right. it just happens over and over. And, and it's yes. happened to Amy Schumer. And it just happens yes. over and over and over again. Yeah, but with and, Amy Schumer and Trevor Noah, though, they're stand-ups. And mm-hmm. it's Especially Amy. Amy doesn't give a fuck. Like you can't. I bet she gives a bit more of a fuck than I. I, I just think everybody who's at the receiving end of that. It, it's, she it, does, but it gives her an up. First of all, she doesn't ever say anything that is uh, indefensible because she's very smart. And mm. also, I think as a comic, everything that she says that's ridiculous. Um, if you want to debate her on like why or not, I mean, she plays the role of a dumb person saying ridiculous shit mm-hmm. all the time. Like that's part of like a persona that she'll adopt and abandon on stage. Mm-hmm. She'll adopt it and abandon it. And you know, going in, that's what she's doing. It's a part of being entertaining. Yeah. It's like, you know, uh, Richard Pryor doing the dopey white guy voice. Do I think he's really a dopey white guy now? He's like, hey, my mom, she's a great old gal. No, he's doing the fucking character of a, a, a dopey person. It's easy to mock. It's the same thing that Amy does. when she's She might not change her voice, but when she says ridiculous shit, she's, she's clearly being a comic and doing it as an art form. Right. You know, so... She I've can heard her a that. few times on your podcast, by the way, and, and uh, she hasn't done it in a little while, right? But she's she been, she's got her show. I haven't talked to her in forever. She's busy as fuck. She's got that movie coming out, mm. but uh, she's very smart. Yeah, she's very smart. And so very she would funny. welcome any opportunity to defend anything like that. She doesn't take herself you know, like mm. ridiculously seriously or anything like that. She's yeah. a very smart girl. But I think as a as a really woman really. wouldn't want her calling me a boy. I think as a there's a, there's like a serious change going on in the way that human beings act towards each other. Do you like it? No, I think it's really bad. It's stressful. Who would have thought? That, the the, the public shaming part. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, what I do like is the fact that there's a leveling of the playing field and social justice. Yes. Is, is, you know, obviously that side of things I really like. But but the problem is that you know. Is that the? I think the problem. I, I tell you what it is. Like I went to college in London in the eighties, and sometimes I feel with social media and with the social justice movement, it's like the worst fucker who used to hang around the student union. Yes. Now gets to decide everything. Right. And it's partly because of like the hundred and forty character Twitter thing. So basically. You know, in the student union in the 1980s, we all cared about social justice, but it's like the most unforgiving, extreme fucker is now the one who's actually setting the agenda. And not only setting the agenda on social media, but because the mainstream media is so enthralled to social media and doesn't want to get hurt, so goes along with it, it's kind of creating an entire society of, of, of... a surveillance society and colleges are where p- 
people first start exercising that muscle. Mm. And it's the most rabid version of this issue today. And it's one of the reasons why a lot of comedians won't perform in colleges anymore. Jerry Seinfeld just got a hard time from a bunch of people because he said that colleges are too politically correct. And Chris Rock is saying the same thing. And I stopped doing colleges a long fucking time ago for, for the very reason. same reason. Yeah. Right. Well, I did a college once, and this is a perfect example of it. But this is a guy, this, this example is perfect because this is before the internet. Um, and this was a guy that I actually talked to face to face. Like someone said, uh, you know, like I would do colleges and I'd fly into these towns and, you know, they're bored. So like I'd tell my jokes and then sometimes I'd do like a and a with them, you know, just for fun because it's a fun way to like you, you let the kids get to ask questions and you get to fuck around and come up with things on the fly. And uh, some some guy said, do you know any uh, joke jokes or something along those lines, right? And I said, I don't remember anyone. I go, okay, I remember this one. Two Jews walk into a bar. They buy it. Like, it's, yeah. it's the end of the joke. It's stupid. It's terrible. That joke, a guy came up to me after the show and said, that joke that you did about Jews is very offensive. I said, yeah. what's offensive about it? That Jews are successful at business? What's offensive? That I use the word Jew? Two Jews walk into a bar. They went to a bar. What part's offensive? Are you just looking to be offended or are you actually offended? And he was flabbergasted. He didn't know what to say because he was a fucking 19-year-old kid. And he thought he had his – he was an awkward, a socially awkward person. And he, he thought, this is my opportunity to be right. Yeah. And he just – I'm offended. Like, and there's all these kids supporting each other. Yes, you do have the right to be offended. And they're all fucking dumb as shit. And they don't have any life experience. And they're, they really – they don't have a nuanced view of the world yet, and they're exercising this new mm. muscle, this new muscle of learning how to call someone on their bullshit, man, yeah. on the patriarchy, on the this, this cis, cisgendered male heteronormative bullshit that you see every day. And they're, they're like finding this, this opportunity to express this rage, and then eventually... Hopefully they'll settle in and hopefully they'll sort of like as time goes on, they have more experience. They'll sort of realize how ridiculous they were, mm. you know, when they were younger. But it's like a natural inclination to like, you know, you fucked up and you know, you've done wrong things. So when you see it in other people, call it. Yeah. So this one kid that said this to me, I mean, that was the extent of our conversation. I said, that's ridiculous. I go, it's not offensive. I go, I'm, first of all, I don't tell I'm not racist. And if I told a racist joke, it'd have to be really good. You know, and then and he goes, we should never tell racist jokes. I go, that's not true. I go, if you if you make me laugh with a really funny racist joke, I'm thankful because you made me laugh. I don't think you think that everything you say is a fucking sworn statement, an affidavit that you're getting giving in court. I assume that when you're doing the art of stand up comedy, you're going to say things you don't really mean because they're funnier than what you really mean. Yeah. And that's part of the art form. Just like when you listen to a song, you know, Bob Marley didn't really shoot the sheriff, okay? Probably didn't shoot anybody. And it's like, it's, it's, it's part of the art. It's making shit up. Hmm. And when you take that away, because people are going to be offended, well, then you remove almost every movie that's ever been made. You remove almost every book that's ever been written. Hmm. You take away almost every stand-up comedian set, and you just get you you fucking nerf the shit out of the world and everybody's boring yeah. and that's not the answer it's not the answer i think this is i mean this is all the reason why i, I i'm so happy to have done the justin sacco story in my mm. book cuz and i had so much pushback and each time i get pushback i feel more and more happy that i did it like I remember I gave a talk in Norwich one of the first talks i gave was in Norwich in England um and 
somebody in the Q&A, somebody said to me, somebody called out, are you a racist? <laughs> and I was like, because I defended Justine. And it's like, you know, so for 30 years, I'm writing about abuses of power. And the first time I say we are the ones abusing our power, someone yells out, are you a racist? And then, um, um, ugh, that's my trade of thought. But isn't that one person? Is, are you just dealing with really simple thinking? Like that's just not a, a, a nuanced, objective, well thought out view of a human being. What they're doing is looking for an opportunity to call you out on something. Yeah. Looking for an opportunity to shame you. And that's what I, the problem I, I have becomes... with all this social justice warrior bullshit that's going on in the world is it's manuf it's manufacturing a lot of hate and it's manuf manifesting itself in a very angry way where. What, what should be people that are pro-gay rights, pro-transgender rights, pro-gay marriage, pro-peace, uh, pro pro-choice, pro-love, pro-left-wing ideology, you know, there's like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This whole idea of like creating a more peaceful world and the way they're going to do it is by ruining everybody who doesn't agree with them and mm. shitting all over them and insulting them. Yeah, and not distinguishing between what's actual social justice and what's a kind of cathartic alternative to social exactly. justice like the destruction of Justine. The destruction of Justine doesn't do any good for anybody no. because she wasn't even intending to be racist. She was trying to make a liberal. She was trying to be like Cart. She was trying to be like Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Right. This isn't so someone who's going justice. after a cop that shot a kid yeah. with a fake pistol or anything. You know, this is... Yeah, exactly. And this is the real problem. And, and the inability to distinguish between the, the serious transgression and the unserious transgression. You... And what it's creating is a kind of surveillance society. It's yes. creating a kind of stasi where everybody's more fearful. Everyone's scared to say things. Um, the great thing about social media was how it gave a voice to voiceless people. And now... People are fleeing social media because they're realizing that the smartest way to survive is to go back to being voiceless. See, I don't think that's true. I don't think they are fleeing. I think they're jumping on in droves. I think some people are jumping off. But I think that what you said, the great thing about it is it gives a voice to people. It's also the terrible thing about it. Mm. But I think what this is, is, as I said before, is this is like a, this adolescent stage of communication. We're reaching this new level of interaction where we can interact with each other instantaneously mm. and that's just never by the way tesla predicted this to tesla predicted smartphones a hundred years ago and i i tweeted this quote today that somebody sent my way absolutely fascinating um it was uh not just a quote it was a um a um uh, a, a piece that tesla had written in like the 1920s amazing where he predicted smartphones like literally described a modern smartphone. Scroll hmm. down, like w w where his actual words. Like no, no, it's act below that. You can actually read it. When wireless is perfectly applied, the whole earth will be converted into a huge brain, which in fact it is, all things being particles of a real and rhythmic whole. We shall be able to communicate with one another instantly, irrespective of distance. Not only this, but through television and telephony like phones, we shall be able to hear one another as perfectly as though we were face-to-face -face despite intervening distances of thousands of miles and the instruments through which we shall be able to do this will, uh, do this, do his will, yeah. be, oh, do his will, huh? 
to do his uh, oh, do will his be amazingly will be simple. amazingly com- simple compared with our present telephone. A man will be able to carry one in his vest pocket. Right. Holy shit. Fuck, that is unbelievable, right? Fucking unbelievable. And when you read that paragraph, you think to yourself, oh my God, you know, when we have that world for ourselves, what an amazing world it will be. It will be a world of curiosity. Mm-hmm. It will be a world of like understanding strangers, of nuance, of context. And so we have the world and we completely throw away curiosity, we throw away nuance, we throw away context, and what we have instead is condemnation. Well, with dummies, but not with everybody. Not with, with a everybody. lot of people. Look, I'm way more informed now than mm. I ever would have been if I had grown up in the 1960s. Mm. Like, if I had grown up in the 1960s and I was a 47 year old man in 1967, I wouldn't know jack shit. I would yeah. be an ape. I mean, that is true. But I do fear, you know, my, I mean, I do fear that, you know, maybe there's two types of people in the world. Those people who favor humans over ideology Mm -hmm. and those people who favor ideology over humans. And right now the ideologues are winning on social media. You know, I don't think they are. I think, no, I just think they're making more noise. And I think that it's, it's really a matter of who those ideological people are surrounding themselves with. I think Mm. they can be swayed into a more understanding nature. And we can decide, this is what somebody wrote about my book, which I really agreed with. Uh, somebody wrote, you know, we can decide who to listen to. Yes. Like with Justine Sacco, the problem was that the bullies won. Like everyone was too scared to defend Justine. Nobody defended Justine that night. Except you, you brave bastard. Look at you. Yeah. Well, a woman called uh, Helen Lewis, <laughs> who writes for the New Statesman, um, wrote a, a review of the, my public shaming book. She said that she tried to defend Justine that night. She wrote, I'm not sure the joke was intended to be racist. And straight what? away, <laughs> yeah, and straight away she got this fury of, uh, well, you're just a privileged bitch too. Whoa. So she said to her, to her shame, she shut up. And that's what happened that night. Like everybody shut up. And it wasn't just on social media, like the mainstream media all got involved. It was like, you know, and, and that became like the dominant narrative about Justine Sacco was that she was yeah. this kind of racist. And, and anybody who tried to stick up for her just got got screamed down. Well, um, almost anybody defending her in defending her, I would say she's probably a little racist. She's, which you can't really think like that. That it's okay to say that if you're not a little racist. But uh, in cracking that joke and saying something like that, which is uncertain, unquestionably a racist joke. Just kidding. I'm white. LOL. Right. Yeah. That's fucking racist. You know, Do so you she, think that's racist? I don't know if that's racist. Is. For me, it's like a bad Randy Newman song. I mean, Randy Newman mm-hmm. sang... Short People. Short People Got right. No Reason to Live. Uh-huh. Like... But he also said, I love L.A. Yeah. Is, that, is that tongue-in-cheek as well? <laughs> yeah, it is tongue-in-cheek because he sings, look at those mountains, right. look at those trees, look at that bum over there, man, he's down on his knees. Yeah. You know, so what Randy right. Newman will do is that he, he will acknowledge his own privilege mm-hmm. and then do a kind of grotesque, extreme right. version of it right. for comedy. He does that in short people, he does it in Isle of LA. And I think that's exactly what Justine Sacco was doing in that joke. She was acknowledging her own privilege and then mocking it by doing a kind of grotesque version of it. And the only difference between Justine and Randy Newman was that Justin just wasn't any fucking good at it. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. I, I see your point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's hard to argue that it couldn't possibly offend people. But mm-hmm. the idea that she knew she was broadcasting it to all those people that were offended... I think people just don't understand what the fuck is yeah. going on when although, they say things online. Although, you know what? When the New York Times extracted my book and the fact checker at the New York Times phoned up Justine and said to her, like, so before you got on the plane, 
were you surprised that like you didn't get any replies? Because while she was like, you know, it all happened after she turned off her phone and fell asleep. Right. And she said, I had 170 Twitter followers. Nobody ever replied to any. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she was using it like as a, she's like yelling into an empty room. Yeah. She said, no one right. ever replied to so any. So she jokes. probably got unreasonably cocky because of that. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. she got on a plane. And so she's probably on Xanax and drinking, which is what a lot of people do when they get on planes. That's uh-huh. like a, a fucking, this lady was explaining to me that that's, she was like, like she was bragging about it. Like, give me a glass of wine and Xanax and I don't give a fuck about anything. She was, it was hilarious. She was just talking. And I was like, I wonder how many people take Xanax and get on planes. And I, apparently talking to people that take Xanax, it's super common. Like right. They get anxiety. They're going to get on a long plane. And also sleeping pills. People take a lot of sleeping pills when they get on planes. You know, speaking of Xanax, I, I was um, when all of this was happening to me, like when the New York Times, you know, extract came out, and and it was just so noisy. It was one of my noisiest stories ever. And the book came out, and it was incredibly noisy. And I went to the studio to do this video, uh, like talking about my book. And the woman on before me um, was a doctor, and she was doing a video about her book. And she said, what, what's your book about? And I said, public shaming. And she said, oh, did you read the uh, piece in the New York Times about Justin Sacco? And I said, I wrote it. And she said, oh, wow, God, you must be so happy. And I said, actually, I'm not happy. And she said, why aren't you happy? And I said, because everyone's there's so much noise. And then she said, so what do you want? And I said, uh, Xanax. And she just got out. <laughs> <laughs> she got out uh, pad and wrote me a prescription for like 60 Xanax, of which, by the way, I've had one and a half. Uh, I don't abuse my Xanax, but I thought, fuck, it's easy to get medication. In this it's country. very easy to get medication in the United States if you go yeah. to the right doctors, meaning go to any doctor. Yeah. Did and, you, but uh, then I thought, fuck. Did like, you take it? I took, like, I took like a half. And what is it like? That made me feel a bit. I, I, I was no longer anxious, <laughs> but I felt groggy. And then I had to weigh up what would I rather feel, groggy or anxious? Welcome to America. That's our dilemma. <laughs> groggy or anxious? <laughs> groggy anxious caffeinated or on Adderall but then I thought God like when she said to me what do you want like all I could think of to say was Xanax but then did I miss like an amazing opportunity like I don't know anything I don't know anything but you know were there like much like way better things than Xanax I could have asked Um, if you're like really into painkillers I guess but you'd have to like say that you're on pain so I think the thing about Xanax is you could say you have anxiety and they'll give you a medication yeah you know God, I, got so uh, I know a guy who uh, had to. He went to a doctor to get a prescription because uh, he was a social justice warrior, and uh, he said a bunch of incorrect things, and people attacked him, and so he had to go to the doctor. So like he's freaked out. Like he got a taste of his own medicine. Right. But that fucker, I, I saw him like six months later, still shitting on people online. Like he mm. didn't didn't learn from the attack <sighs> on him. Like it's almost like they they get caught up in this. They, they, they get addicted to this drama of shitting on people, of attacking people. Yeah, it's weird. You know what? Since I, I mean, I don't do it anymore. I do not pile in on anybody anymore, even people who, who deserve it. I tend not to pile in on anymore. I'll tell you what, where I think it all comes from. The fact, in, in my book, the Psych- for me anyway, in my book, The Psychopath Test, I, I'm really critical of like labeling culture. I'm mm. really I'm critical of like the fact that the DSM is 886 pages long and has a mental disorder for everything. And, yes. Uh, and, and most people, I think, agree with me that that's kind of it's like easy to agree with me about that. But then on social media, we do exactly the same thing. We label people. Right. And yet. So the very same people who agree with me about the, the kind of, you know, what's wrong with labeling culture in the world. 
go home and do it themselves on social media. I've been really toying with this very strange idea lately. Um, I had this conversation with my good friend Duncan Trussell, and we were um, we were talking about labels and um, and self definition and the, the the sort of imprisonment of definition. And I said, well, even words like names for people, like my name is Tom you know fuckhead you know whatever and as tom you know you're a whitmore and as a whitmore you know you're you're supposed to stand for something in this world right. like that i think we're that, ronsons yeah we're ronsons <laughs> god damn it you're a rogan stiffen up boy yeah. they they i think these ideas of of like having a name like a label like you're you're coca-cola you know you're jamie vernon you know there's this i mm. think having instead of just being you like having names, even names themselves, like you'd say, oh, well, you know, what do you expect? It's that fucking John Ronson guy. Yeah. You know, like all of a sudden you can be boxed in and defined. You're not just a human being who is sort of like uh, existing with these other human beings. You're a labeled human being. Yeah. And that label can be great. You know, you can be the Dalai Lama or that label can be shit. You could be Donald Trump, you know, and you're you're right now. Donald Trump is an easy pile on. Yeah. Everybody will jump on him. He said a bunch of racist things about Mexicans and a bunch of dumb shit during his speech announcing that he's going to be president. He's an easy pile on. Mm. And he's also a guy that sort of embraces self-definition. He embraces his label so much so that he puts his label on the the top of a building trump towers this is the the trump casino and the trump mm. this and like it's a part of the definition yeah. i think any sort of definition like that like officer professor you know doctor you know how about people that want like cosby was making people call him a doctor when he got an honorary doctorate really? you know i guess maybe you know secretly it was a, a big joke for him because he was drugging people you yeah. know allegedly yeah New news right now. It's came out. He admitted to it. <gasps> 2005 in court. I'll show you the little article. It's oh, well, this right just happened oh, just now. It just, just happened? Oh, my goodness. He admitted in a 2005 deposition that he obtained quaaludes, a sedative with the intent of giving them to women he wanted to have sex with, according to records obtained by the Associated Press on Monday. The huh. admission was contained in records that were unsealed after the AP went to court to compel their release. Cosby's attorneys had repeatedly sought to keep the record sealed, arguing that they would be embarrassing. This was um, a case that Cosby um, paid a woman off and then uh, because he had paid her off part of the deal uh, part of the arrangement was that the records were to be sealed so hmm. they uh, went to court and wow he's fucked now he gave her like three and a half Benadryl or something That's another thing I was reading this big I said God, yeah. what a monster! What's the statute of limitations and all of this stuff? Can, it's a very can good question. Fucked? I yeah, think he I, can I, be. Well, yeah. two thousand five. I can't imagine the statute of limitations is. Well, if that's two thousand five, that's when he admitted it. But when was the actual instance? Hmm. That's monster shit. That's really that's dehumanizing shit. I think we can go. That's a long conversation. It's sort of semi-related. The definition of Bill Cosby, because Bill Cosby is a sort of iconic individual, and Bill Cosby is a celebrity, and because of that, he was worshipped and treated like a celebrity. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that worship, he sort of had an expectation of worship, and also, and this is total armchair psychology from a dude who went to college for three years and barely paid attention, right. but. The I think the the expectation of that and the years and years of that, much like being a spoiled child, uh -huh. leads you to be a person who expects that from people and can 
even justify horrific behavior because you actually do think that you're better than someone the same way royalty does the same way you know Hmm. people who have grown up their life like bohemian grove again look at a reason for a lot of ways maybe i mean i think there's uh, uh, i think it's related in a way Hmm. to the idea of labeling Hmm. labeling and you know just well you know that's not a human being that's a police officer officer johnson you know, uh, you refer to the judge as your honor. You know, yeah. you, you can't go, hey, man, you know, I know you're reading off a book, but don't lock me in a fucking cage because I had a joint. He- Order in the court. Yeah. You will refer to him as your honor. You know, what I mean, like that, that all that stuff, the fucking when they used to wear crazy wigs and outfits. Yeah. What are they doing They're Well, they're separating themselves. They're differentiating themselves and they're labeling. They're, they're putting themselves in a very distinctive position. Labeling. It's, it's really one of the it's one of the worst things that's happening in this country at the moment. Mm. Uh, there, I, in, in, in the psychopath test, I write about how these kids <coughs> like as young as one and two are getting labeled bipolar because <laughs> everyone's so in love with the checklists that a kid goes to see a psychiatrist with a temper tantrum and, and so it, it scores high on the bipolar checklist so they're then given antipsychotic medication yeah. at the age of like literally one and two. You know, that's how much labelling culture is out of control. You know, as a journalist, the question that I, I love asking most is is why? You know, because that opens doors. Mm. You know, why? And right. then you have to go somewhere else. But with labelling culture, including labelling culture on social media, it's like it, it, it closes doors. Labels close doors. Questions open doors. Well, it's, well, they certainly define in like yeah. a, a very concrete way. This is what I felt, you know, I felt most out of step uh, lately with the whole Rachel Dolezal thing. Because mm-hmm. when I heard that story, I just thought that is so mysterious and complicated mm. and nuanced. And, you know, maybe she's maybe she's mentally ill or maybe she's not. Whatever's going on here, this is like really fucking mysterious and interesting and I had like a thousand questions and so I went on Twitter expecting that that would be Twitter's response too they'd have like a thousand questions right. but no people were either like ridiculing her or attacking her like yelling blackface or, or whatever oh but there's plenty of people supporting her her position as being transracial right. those, those are my favorite right. those people well, are adorable it, right but <laughs> I just thought fucking hell I can't you know what I thought? I thought I've been a journalist for 30 years and I'm sick. And I don't know where to go with this, but I thought I'm really sick of like damaged people being other people's playthings, either ideological playthings or playthings for mockery or whatever. And obviously there's nothing wrong with comedy and satire and mockery. I mean, that's fine. But nonetheless... So glad you said that. <laughs> but nonetheless, <laughs> I'm just sort of sick of... of Cruelty. Yeah, of making other human beings our playthings instead of, you know, for whatever reasons, instead of, like, curiosity. Well, if it was as simple as play... Uh, mm-hmm. play things like m- just just straight up mockery i would expect that you would get some clever humor out of it but it's hate there's yeah. a lot of anger and hate and this whole public shaming thing sort of goes along with that yeah. i mean there's uh, some people that i follow that i don't agree with and uh but unfortunately i agree with their position on a lot of things like a marriage like you know uh, equality for all like there's so many different things that I agree with like extreme left-wing people on that it's really problematic because when some of them adopt this sort of social warrior public shaming stance, I'm so torn because on one side I want to go after them. 
But mm-hmm. on another side, I, I agree with almost all of their positions yeah. on equality for women and equality for gay people. and equal- I mean, there's so many of the positions that I have the exact same stance on. But yeah. I, I don't have this stance on public shaming. Or if I do, my stance is public humor. You know, my, my stance, whether Chris Christie says he's going to uh, lock up everyone who smokes marijuana, you know, uh, because marijuana is so dangerous. I'm like, Jesus Christ, do you have a fucking mirror in your house? Mm. You're morbidly obese and you're telling people that they can't have a substance that has never killed a single person ever. Over, being overweight is one of the major causes of premature death in the United States of America. Mm. Ha- having a heart attack is one of the major causes. And having a heart attack is almost directly related in most people to being overweight. I mean, it's a huge issue. And this fucking slob is on television telling people that he's going to stop marijuana because it's dangerous. You know, he's stuffing hot dogs on his fat face. Like, to me, yeah. a guy like that has to be mocked because it's, it's there. And that's my job. Just like the fucking crocodile sees the wounded antelope and it gets too close to the water hole. It can't help it. It's got to snap at it. <laughs> if I'm a comic and you say something stupid like that and you are just this blatantly obvious target, like that is a dangerous person in my, in my opinion. Yeah. Because he's a person who could dictate policy. Well, he's yeah, a person exactly. who can make laws. And he's a person that literally can lock people up in jail. He, yeah. can, get, he can get people's freedom taken away. Yeah. Uh, you're punching up and you're being funny and there's nothing, you know, I'd, I'd be a real dope if I was going to start being against things like that i guess you know what what my book's against is the disproportionate yes. punishment of people who don't deserve it well and that's it's bullying big, yeah it's bullying. piling on yeah. i mean it, it i mean it's it's also having a lack of there's a lack of perspective that comes with a lot of these pile-on bullying things like the um the what's the woman's name again Sacco. uh justine yeah justine the, the rachel dolezal thing first of all um, she handled herself very well on yeah. Matt Lauer. Yeah, I should say, by the way, that me sort of saying all of that stuff on Twitter was right at the beginning before she'd said anything. I was like, say, look, we don't know anything about this woman. You know, we don't know anything. Like, everyone's jumping to conclusions. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows anything. And I was just like, kind of screamed at for that. And She and- had some other issues, though, that were exposed as time went on. And one of them is she's a plagiarist. Oh, yeah? Yeah, she plagiarized some art. And she was selling some art that she clearly plagiarized. And... She's just deceptive. She lied about her background. She said she was born in a teepee. Like, she's just not a truthful person. Mm. And sometimes when people don't enjoy their life, mm. uh, you know, I've, I've met uh, a lot of kids when I was young that, you know, came from really fucked up backgrounds. And those are the ones that told, like, the really big lies. Yeah. And I think that a lot of those lies were because they didn't like their reality, you know, and yeah. that's. They didn't, they didn't I mean, ask to be and born. And with people like that, you know, there's a mystery, right? With people like that, you're like, so what happened? You right. know, why do you feel that way? What's yeah. going on? Whereas with Rachel Dolezal, like the minute this breaks on social media, everyone's just like, you know, fucking racist. Shut the fuck up. There's no questions. It's well, just black people answers. get really angry because and, and, she's appropriating uh, yeah. a disenfranchised segment of society and, and that are, got, has already been stolen from from white by white people, you know? And I had people tweeting me to say... You know, you're a white man. This isn't your story. You That's don't have hilarious, to. isn't it? You don't have, you're not allowed to have an opinion because yeah. you weren't born with the right amount of melanin in your skin. So your mind is not working right. Well, they said this is your story. You can't comment on this. This is because this isn't your story. That's bullshit. I, well, I felt it kind of was my story because I've, for 30 years I've been writing about troubled people and I've come to conclusions about the way you should regard other people, other human beings, with sort of interest and curiosity and compassion, not cold, hard, 
judgment. So well, that, that's where I came from in that story. It's also that the, you, saying that it's not you're not allowed to have an opinion or it's not your story. That is you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to silence anybody that doesn't agree with you. Everyone that is a human being that witnesses a story, you witness some public thing that's taking place. You are absolutely allowed your opinion. And if, if you're not going to allow people to speak up about things and have opinions about things, whether these opinions are informed or uninformed, that's mm. all going to be sorted out in the wash. Mm. But to, to say it's not your position to talk, well, then you're publicly silencing yeah. people. And, you know, and exactly. And what that is the opposite of, of course, is, is democracy. Yes. I mean, I was reading people. I went off social media after all of that because there was so much screaming. And I was reading people <laughs> basically saying, OK, let's go to john ronson into saying something outrageous and then we can get him is that what they said yeah <laughs> and I was why would like, they say that though you know why they'd say that is because uh the the young have decided for some mystifying reason to create an incredibly stressful world for themselves i don't think they realize what they're doing um yeah. but the, the the rachel dolezal thing was uh, to me it was a perfect example of how ludicrous human beings are, how ridiculous our society is, and how like, this woman is like, first of all, the NAACP was founded by white people. It's something a lot of people don't know. And b black folks weren't even allowed to hold office until In the, the 1970s. Well, like the Cotton Club. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Well, it was actually founded by New York City intellectuals, I believe. I hope I'm not doing this wrong. That um, they they really uh, it was in response to all the lynchings, uh -huh. and you know they were like they were just they were compassionate, intelligent, uh, progressive people that were trying to figure out a way past this horrible situation that the world had found himself in post-slavery where there was all this resentment and there was there was lynch, lynchings and this the chaos that is the south and you know i think we're still dealing with the reverberation the re, re, repercussions and the reverberations of it right now mm -hmm. with this uh confederate flag debate that's going on all throughout america now it's like america's just sort of kind of waking up to the fact that well fuck man a hundred or so years ago you were allowed to own people yeah you know yeah. and the people that wanted to be able to own people had a flag and these people put that flag on a car and drove it around on tv and we didn't think about it yeah you know and now we're thinking about it and you know for the I, record by the way i was always disappointed when the dukes of hazard was on tv that was because of the flag no just because it wasn't as good as wonder woman but i realize this is a kind of tangent <laughs> Um, but what about Daisy Duke? Well, Wonder Woman was pretty fucking hot, too. Yeah. Right? I spent a lot of time with the Ku Klux Klan, you know, from, from my book them. I, I discovered this um, politically correct faction of the Ku Klux Klan oh! in Arkansas. What? Yes. Run by a guy called Tom Robb, who decided that the Klan had a really bad image and he was going to do something about it. Was this it. recently? No, this is like the mid-90s. I read about it in my book, Them. Why? Is he back in the news? No, there's another group, uh, another faction of the Ku Klux Klan that was allowing black people and they wanted to allow black people in. 
Oh, really? Well, yeah. that is the kind of thing that Tom would have done. In fact, Tom was accused by other white supremacists of kissing a black baby. Um, and he had to kind of deny it. He had to, he had to issue a denial. No black baby. But I went Look to at Tom's, my lips. <laughs> I went to Tom's house and he directed, so he'd banned, I went for his big annual convention and he'd banned like the robes and the hoods. Whoa. They were allowed to wear robes one day a year and they were allowed to, <laughs> and they, yeah, and they were allowed to burn a cross one day a year. Oh my God. Yeah. And it was the day that I turned up and they were all standing around this giant cross that's lying on the oh. ground. And they couldn't remember because they were all so rusty. <laughs> they, they couldn't remember whether to soak it and then raise it or raise it and then soak it. Oh, that's hilarious. So they were standing around. And then Tom comes over and they go, Tom, we can't do we soak it and then raise it or raise it and then soak it. And Tom goes, you soak it and then raise it. How the, how the hell are you going to like soak it once it's raised? What kind of are you? I know. Then Tom <laughs> looks at me as if to say... I'm so sorry that my members are such idiots. Like Tom preferred me to the clown. Oh <laughs> um, my god, that's adorable. Yeah, and then he, and then they had this oh. marquee in his garden, and and they were all doing this kind of personality skills workshops, like like all filling out these multiple choice, like which strengths and weaknesses most apply to you. Um, I always remember like one of the strengths and weaknesses was mixes easily, which normally would be like a strength, but if you're the clan, it's going, <laughs> it's going to be a weakness. And then another one was warrior. And one of the clansmen was like going, well, I don't consider being a warrior to be a weakness. And then like the person doing the test was like, well, actually being a warrior can be a weakness. And he thought it was warrior. And it was warrior. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, who <laughs> says warrior? Are you a worrier? Uh, like, the no English, one really says that. The English, the English do? Yeah, oh, I, I, as I an see. Englishman, I'm a worrier. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, I could see someone saying, I'm a worrier, but I couldn't see it as a question. Are you a worrier? Yeah. I would see, think the question would be a little bit more straightforward. <laughs> like, do you worry a lot? I've, I've got to say, in a kind of generic multiple choice question and answer thing, warrior would be like an odd one to have in there. <laughs> Are you a warrior? <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir, I am. I'm a warrior for the white yeah. race. Well, I'm not. I've, I've, like I'm, I would call myself a, a warrior. <laughs> <laughs> now, what is the reason why they burn the cross? Uh, it's a cross. They call it a cross lighting, not a cross burning. Oh, and, it, and it goes. It's back a glass up, half full sort of a thing. <laughs> I think it goes back to the Scottish. <laughs> I believe it's all to do with like. I can't remember. They told me. You know what it's like being a journalist? Like, you know everything for a short amount of time, and then you move right. on to the next story. You, you write your story. forget yeah. it all. I've got a terrible memory anyway. I've lost... That's it's like being a podcaster, too. Right. We've talked about things, you know, we've done 667 episodes now. Shit. So we get Am to... I the 667? Yes. Who did you have you for the 666? Evil. Duncan Trussell. Ah. Uh, <clears throat> but he's pretty, don't know who he pretty fake evil. Right. Uh, <laughs> fake evil. He's a great guy. Yeah. But he could play evil. <laughs> One time I was, uh, I went on a road trip with the clan from Harrison, Arkansas to St. Paul. Long journey, like 17 hours. I was in a car for 17 hours with the clan. Whoa. And at one point, Tom turned to me, the leader, and he said, can I ask you a question? And I said, what? And he said, do you think I'm weird? Wow. Yeah. And I was like, I, I, I think you're in a transitional phase between weird and not weird oh that's yeah. interesting so you were playing like psychological yeah well i was in the car with the games clan. With but saying <laughs> that he's in a transitionary period like what did you mean by that well because he was trying to you know trying to do an image makeover trying right. to be more politically correct 
It didn't did really he, turn out. And did he feel that black people are inferior to white people? Did he really clearly feel that? Well, he would probably call himself like a white separatist, but he wasn't actually. Mm. I mean, I've met white separatists like Randy Weaver, and they're far, they're far yeah. nicer people than Tom was. Randy Weaver, who's the Ruby Ridge guy, right? Yeah, he's a white separatist. I really got I got on well with the Weavers. Got on really well, Rachel, his daughter. And that story is a kind of a fucked up story, right? Like he was, uh, they had a house alone in the woods and they were killed by snipers, right? Yeah, this is a really bad story. So they were, this is the first story I ever did where I feel like I kind of twisted it round so that the people who would normally be the villains were the good guys and the people who would normally be the good guys were the villains. I always felt good about that. So basically they were family of like, you know, they believe in Bohemian Grove and Bilderberg. And I, I went, I tried to infiltrate Bilderberg one time, by the way, and got chased away by huh. by their henchmen. I don't know if there's time to tell that story later. There was plenty of time. Okay. So, uh, so they moved to this cabin up in the woods uh, on top of a mountain in Idaho, Ruby Creek, Idaho. And Randy uh, would hang out at the local Aryan Nations with the family. That was his big undoing, was that he he would take the family up to Aryan nations who were just, you know, were fucking nuts, like violent skinhead nuts. And Randy would take his family up there for like picnics and away days and so on. Oof. So Aryan nations, like pretty much every white supremacist, you know, group in America was heavily infiltrated by by undercover officers. And they saw Randy and saw his family and could tell that Randy was less crazy than the other people there so they approached randy and said do you want to become an undercover informant and randy said no so then randy thought that was that but then they sent a guy to ask randy to saw off a shotgun so he so he said okay fine so he sawed off a shotgun slightly below the legal limit like the guy pointed at him and said no saw it off there so he sawed it off there and then they said aha we've got you um this was an undercover cop. You've now committed a firearms offence. You will go to jail unless you become an undercover informant for us. And Randy, being a being a twat, said, no, fuck off. And he kind of embarrassed the feds in front of his wife. He said, look at those two guys over there. Guess what they just asked me to do? And so Randy was like an idiot. And then he, he locked himself up in the cabin with his wife and, and kids and dog. Um, and then... and. So they they surrounded the cabin, the the ATF, and this went on for like a year. Um, they they set up cameras in the trees and surrounded Randy's cabin. And then one day, the um, the the ATF people got too close to the cabin and disturbed the dog. And the dog starts like barking, and the dog chases the agents down the hill. And Randy's little boy, who was who was like twelve years old or something, Sammy, chased the dog down the hill with a gun because Randy, like an idiot, had armed his kids. And uh, so they all run down to the bottom of the hill. An agent jumps out and shoots the dog, kills the dog. Sammy says, you killed my dog, you son of a bitch, and starts shooting wildly. And the agent shoots Sammy in his arm and basically shoot his arm nearly off. And Sammy yells... Dad, I'm coming home, Dad, and starts running up the hill. And the ATF agent just shoots Sammy in the back as he's running up the hill, just in a sort of volley of gunfire. So so Sammy's now dead. This story doesn't get any better, I should tell you. Sammy's now dead. Randy gets Sammy's body, puts him in the shed. And then the next day, oh, um, one of Randy's friends is there. 
and there's a shootout and one of the agents, a guy called Bill Duggan, gets killed too. So now you've got two dead people. You've got a dead agent and you've got Sammy dead. Um, the jury's always been asked as to whether the agent was killed by Randy's friend or by friendly fire. Um, so anyway, the next day, Randy goes outside and an FBI sniper called Lon Horiuchi shoots Randy in the shoulder. So Randy runs back in and Vicky, Randy's wife, is standing in the doorway holding her baby and a, a sniper shoots Vicky through the head and, and kills her. And they pull Vicky's body into the cabin and, and a siege starts, like a 16-day siege or something. And at, that, and at the roadblock down at the bottom, that's kind of where the militia movement started. Like all these local militia people all form at the bottom of the roadblock and for days and then discover that Vicky's dead and, and it's, I mean I've seen some amateur footage and it's, it's so sad and, and I've become really good friends with Rachel who's Randy's younger daughter uh, who was in the cabin for all of that time and, and in the end the government admitted responsibility and paid each of Randy's daughters a million dollars each and, and they killed Randy uh, no Randy's still alive Randy now really? yeah Randy now goes to gun shows where you can have your photograph taken with Randy Weaver for five dollars oh my god yeah, um, for how much five dollars he sells himself quite short it's a bargain yeah uh, historical figure so that's so one of the people who visited Randy's cabin I visited Randy's cabin with Rachel and another person who visited Randy's cabin was Timothy McVeigh um, shortly before blowing up the Murrah building in Oklahoma City. Have you ever seen the conspiracy theories on that? About Yeah, I, I visited Elohim City, the place which you know about, right? The place where, you know, I, you know. I know I've got a kind of reputation for being a, a debunker of conspiracies and, and the reputation is kind of warranted in most cases. But I've got to say of all the things I, I investigated when I was doing a lot of stuff about conspiracies, the one where I thought this is a bit fucking fishy was, was Oklahoma, City. Oklahoma City. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's most certainly fishy. Uh-huh. What's most certainly fishy is the efficacy of that bomb. The bomb that they used, the fertilizer bomb that blew half that building apart. Uh-huh. When you talk to bomb experts, they go, that is like really, really unlikely. Mm-hmm. They said that the amount of damage that a bomb like that that's made out of fertilizer can do is nothing in comparison to what that building was like. And mm-hmm. also that that building um, looked like it had been blown out. Not uh-huh. it had been blown in, but blown out meaning that there was bombs planted inside the building. And then there was all these news reports. It was another one of Alex Jones's uh, uh, stories. There was all these news reports that he played these clips of where they were talking about FBI agents removing bombs, unexploded bombs, from the building. Mm-hmm. And that there were more than one bomb. And then they had this... You know this narrative that they blamed it on Timothy McVeigh and what was the other guy's name? Uh, Terry Nichols. Terry Nichols, yeah. Yeah. And um, that it was this fertilizer bomb. And remember, there was like oh, there's all this. They were looking for uh, a guy from Iraq, and there was all this like the different stuff that was going on in the news, like right after it was over. But then they had settled on the story that he had done it, and they had done it all with this fertilizer bomb. But um, it, it's 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 a weird one because I mean I don't have an answer and I I don't even have a theory like who could have done it or how it yeah. was done or what would have been done. I mean, look, all we know is someone blew up that fucking building. I mean, if it was just him, 
and Terry Nichols. It was just Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols. Um, that to me is no more crazy than it was a bunch of other people that planted bombs inside the building. It's all a heinous act of horror mm. and murder. Yeah, the weird the weird thing that we discovered when I when I was doing the Oklahoma story was this place called Elohim City. Have you have you heard of this place? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I visited Elohim City. Uh, they all they all put this is like this kind of white separatist stroke supremacist compound in the Arkansas Oklahoma borders in, in the Ozarks. Uh, Spooky I, spot. Yeah, I turned up and they all did the river dance for me. Oh Jesus! Yeah, I'd just been chased through Portugal by the Bilderberg Group, and I bonded with them over that. Like I told, <laughs> I told them that I'd, all, that I'd just been chased by they Bilderberg. Knew about the Bilderberg? Yeah, everyone, all of these, all of that crowd back then knows, knew about Bilderberg. Um, and I said, "Yeah, I've just been chased by the Bilderberg Group," which I was. I. I um, it, in my book, then when I was trying to infiltrate secret societies, I went to Portugal with Jim Tucker. Um, the he write, he worked for this magazine called the Spotlight, which was run by this kind of white separatist group called the Liberty Lobby in Washington D.C. Oh. Basically, everybody kept telling me about this group called the Bilderberg Group that no one had heard of back then. Only only real niche aficionados had heard of Bilderberg back then. Um, and uh, much in the same way that I kind of launched, I feel like I partly launched Alex Jones's career. I also feel <laughs> I partly gave the world Bilderberg because I was the first like mainstream writer to write about it. Because everyone was saying that there's this group called the Bilderberg Group and they secretly rule the world from inside a secret room. Uh, and they said, if you ask Big Jim Tucker, he'll tell you more. <laughs> so, I, so I phoned up Jim Tucker uh, and he said, yeah, it's true. They, they always meet once a year in a five-star hotel with golfing facilities. Uh, that's where they rule the world. And he said, you've caught me at a good time. Honestly, it looked like something out of, like, Sam Spade. He had a, an office with Venetian blinds and he wore a trilby and he smoked, like, 80 a day. Uh, he said that he had emphysema, which made him sound even more like someone out and of Sam Spade. he still smoking? He died a couple of years ago, but he lasted a fuck of a lot longer than I'd have put money on. I mean, I, I met him in March and I thought he'd be dead by May, but actually he lasted about another 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, he only died recently, like a couple of years ago. And this was like 96. So Jim said, uh, he said, yeah, I've discovered where they're going to meet. Like my secret source has told me that they're meeting at the Caesar Park Hotel, a golfing resort in Sintra, Portugal. And I'm going to fly over there. I apologize for my semi-American accent uh, I'm doing here. He said, I'm going to fly over there and climb up the drain pipes and get in and confront and red-handed going about their covert wickedness. So I said, can I come? And he said, okay, as long as you... Did he use the term covert wickedness? I might be slightly exaggerating. (laughs) (laughs) You might put an English spin on it there. (laughs) But he basically, I'm pretty sure he said he was going to climb up the train. Covert wickedness. That sounds like a white supremacist if I ever heard one. That's how they talk. (laughs) So we flew there. So me and Jim Tucker flew to Portugal and scouted around the Caesar Park Hotel. And we decided that our cover story would be like, he'd be like a sales, we'd be salesman. But we didn't look anything like fucking salesman. I was like an early 30s, you know, skinny little Jewish guy. And he was like this big Southern gentleman. So we looked like really fucking suspicious. Like a gay couple. Yeah, like gay couple. I could have been like his toy boy. Uh, <laughs> and like we were like scouting around, like trying to talk to waitresses and stuff. This was the day before the Bilderberg Group was reportedly going to arrive at this hotel. And then we left and we started get- I looked in my rear view mirror and there was a car following me. And, and, a, and a chase ensued. Um, like through the streets of, I mean, I say a chase. I was going thirty miles an hour, so so was he. But I keep thinking, you know, I kept thinking, fuck, if I speed up, 
he's going to speed up. It's going to be like a fucking chase. So it was very obvious he was falling. He wasn't trying to be sneaky. No. Well, I stopped the car and he stopped his car like behind me. So I... I thought I've got to say something to him. So I, I went over to the car and I like knocked on the window and there's a guy in dark glasses in the car looking straight ahead and I'm knocking on the window and he refuses to look at me. Like, obviously his orders were to follow but don't engage. Like, I'm suddenly in a world where I am like being followed by somebody whose orders are to follow and not engage. So I freak the fuck out. So I get back in the car and I phone up, first I phone up my wife and I say, I'm being followed by the Bilderberg group. I am fucking terrified. And my wife goes, oh, you're loving it. <laughs> and, I'm going, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not. And then I phone up the <sighs> British Embassy and I phone up the British Embassy and I said, uh, I'm being followed by the Bilderberg group. Um, and then the woman for the British Embassy goes, <gasps> And then she goes, go on. And, I, and, I, and I'm like, <laughs> I, I just heard you take a sharp breath. And then she says, well, what are you, she says, do, do they know, you know, do they know you're here? I mean, what are you, what are you doing here? And I said, I, I'm essentially a humorous journalist out of my depth. Uh, can you phone? What I also said to her, to my shame, uh, I didn't put this in my book. I, I wrote about all of this in my book then. Um, what I didn't say, what I didn't put in my book was that I also said to her, I said, I'm a humorous journalist out of my depth. I'm a bit like Louis Theroux. And she's like, oh, like she's heard of him and not me. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but actually Louis often cites me as an inspiration. <laughs> and <laughs> I swear to God, like, this is like my last day on earth. I'm about to be killed by the oh, Bilderberg no, Group. And I'm, and I'm telling the press officer from the British Embassy in Portugal that Louis actually speaks highly of me. <laughs> and uh, so then, I, and then she oh. says, um, she says, this is, she said, this is, the, this is like the most startling thing that happened that day. She said, well, the good news um, is if you know you're being followed, they're probably just trying to intimidate you, intimidate you. And the dangerous ones would be those you don't know are following you. And I'm thinking, first, how the fuck does the press officer at the British Embassy know this? And they, what if these people are the dangerous ones? And I just happen to be like naturally good at spotting them. Like I'm an anxious person. I, I will spot. Like I suffer from anxiety. Like I will spot if somebody's following me. Right? Right. Yeah. So anyway, so then, she, <laughs> so then I go back to my hotel and uh, the woman for the British Embassy phones me back and says that she's spoken to the Bilderberg group and they've said that nobody is following me. Of course. Yeah. So I'm like, he's behind the tree. Like, I'm by the pool. I'm going, I, he, I'm, he's standing behind the tree. And she goes, well, look, just sit tight. I'm sure it's going sure to go away. So I went down to the beach. Jim Tucker, throughout all of this, by the way, is loving it. He's loving every fucking second of this. It's his dream come true. I'm, I'm sure, right? Yeah. I go down to the beach. I'm petrified. I want to like abandon the story, like drive back to England from Portugal because <laughs> I'm I'm afraid I'm going to get like stopped at immigration. Are they yes. uh, yeah, you can pretty sure. much you can get get the ferry from from Paris. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so I think it's, it's like a two day drive, but fuck it. Right. So then I had a cameraman with me, David Barker, because I was filming some of this for a documentary. He convinced me to like stick it out. Uh, so I went to the beach and then I and then I came back to the hotel 
And I swear to God, there's these two men in dark glasses sitting in the lobby of the hotel. And as soon as I walk in, they both grab brochures and start reading them. And I'm like, fuck. So I go up to Jim Tucker and I say, there's these two men in the lobby and, and reading brochures and they're only pretending to read brochures. And Jim says, how do you, how do you know? And I said, you can tell by their demeanour. And then later, when Jim wrote all of this up for his conspiracy website, he like transcribed this conversation. And he said, I, I said to Ronson, how can you tell? And Ronson replied, you can tell them by their smell. Ah, <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't say smell, I said demeanor. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what, is a, what does a Bilderberger smell like? Yeah, like power. Like power. So, mm. And uh, their henchmen smell like badly paid power so uh anyway that was basically it but uh the next day we 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 went back to the hotel and stood at the bottom and watched all of these people driving up the drive um henry kissinger david rockefeller like all of these really? people. yeah and they all really did turn up vernon jordan who was bill clinton's like man behind you know like 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 bill clinton's like you know, man in the background. Lots of people in the background. Is there an official explanation for the Bilderberg Group? Yeah. Well, much later on, like after all of this happened, I managed to interview three members of the Bilderberg Group, including the Secretary General, uh, and including one of their founding fathers, who's a, who was this British politician who's still alive, called Dennis Healy, who was a big like, Labour politician in the 1970s. And he said, and I believe him, that Bilderberg was set up after the Second World War um, because there was this big move against ideological politicians, like post-Hitler. Like, we don't want any more Hitlers, so let's kind of create this sort of globalist one world, new world order. I mean, you know, the, the phrase new world order, I think, is, is true. I think they were trying to create like a one world government right. where business would be more important than politics because business people are more trustworthy than ideological politicians. I think that, that, was, their, that was their thesis back then. So it was kind of centrist, almost kind of liberal in a, in a way. Um, if you buy that, John Ronson, I got a bridge to sell you in Portugal. <laughs> well, I think that that was where they came from. But of course, what they didn't account for, or maybe did account for it and didn't give a shit, was that CEOs would be just as fucking evil and uh, and and malicious and ideological in their own way as politicians. And so that's why Bilderberg became this kind of more nefarious, presumably became this more nefarious thing. Yeah, I, I think if there's only if there's ever going to be one antidote for power it's it's information it's uh, being able to expose all the dealings and secret organizations like the bilderbergs mm. or to a lesser extent the bohemian grove type folks yeah like i i think the only thing that sort of mitigates that and diminishes that is everyone knowing about that yeah. you know and more people excuse me more people know about the bilderbergs now than ever before the bilderberg group is like something that well people will they'll, they'll say it mm. they don't really know a lot like i'll yeah. say it I, I don't know much about it i know that really important rich people meet and they discuss things and every single person who's ever been president has met them yeah i said that actually to the um secretary general of the bilderberg group when i interviewed him Scott martin taylor i said you know you, you get so many like up-and-coming politicians who end up being like president or prime minister and he said thank you 
Like he took that as a compliment. <laughs> uh, uh, like, you know, we're good at star spotting the next. And Dennis Healy said to me, look, the star idea spotting. is... Yeah, star spotting. And Dennis Healy said to me, the idea is to get these rising politicians and introduce them to the heads of business and hopefully influence them to be more sensible and more globalist and less less nationalist. I think or that's, that's the, whore them out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a network. I mean, no question. Right. No question. No, all these places exist for a reason. I take a bit of credit. I think my book then was the first time Bilderberg like was ever discussed in kind of mainstream, the mainstream world. And then shortly after me, this journalist called Charlie Skelton came along, who's another sort of mainstream writer for The Guardian. And he goes every year to Bilderberg now. And partly as a result of him and partly as a result of me, suddenly Bilderberg is discussed in the mainstream world. But when I went to Bilderberg, and now like loads of people like turn up to protest Bilderberg and so on. And they've even got a bit of a website now, I think. And they certainly admit existing now. And they didn't used to. They kind of have to, right? And yeah, that's exactly. the information thing. Yeah. So that's partly to do with, with them and partly to do with Charlie Skelton. You, your book, the, them. Uh-huh. You know, I'm I'm very fascinated by extremists, and uh, I'm very fascinated by uh, I'm very fascinated by the spectrum of human thinking and behavior, and mm-hmm. that we're all kind of terrified of people that are on the far end in one way or another. We're terrified of like extreme lefties, and we're terrified of extreme righties. Mm-hmm. You know, did you when when did you was Anything like really revealing or unusual about that journey of trying to write that and, and, and in your own mind, did you try to like one of the things I try to do when I watch like ISIS videos mm-hmm. or I watch like uh, radical fundamentalist uh, Islamic guys talk, I try to uh, imagine myself agreeing with them and being one of them and being happy to be one of them that yeah. like, you know, like there's there's some there's some appeal and some draw to being extremely confident about what you're saying, mm. even if what you're saying is absolutely ridiculous, like stoning people for homosexuality. And you see all of that happening on you know, social media, yes. now, which I write about in the new book. You, know, you see this kind of joy in approval, like yes. mutual approval. Yes. I mean, that's what I think is the problem with Twitter. It's, it's, it's become like a sort of mutual approval machine that we surround ourselves with people who feel the same way we do and we approve each other. And that's such a great feeling. If anybody gets in the way and says, I don't agree with, with what you're doing here, you feel ferociously angry about them and you scream them out. And yeah, so I think this kind of mutual approval that goes on in both on social media and also in extremist groups. Don't you think that people say things, a lot of the things they say, they say knowing that people are going to approve. So they tailor these things in a way that like they lick their finger and put it up in the air and they catch the wind like, ooh, the wind's going this way. I'm going to yeah. say something that puts me on the moral high ground. Yeah. And I'm going to get a lot of retweets. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's I, I think it's kind of damaging. I mean, you know, like you said before, you know, I come from a social justice world. So I believe in all the things that they believe in. Right. I, I believe in gay marriage. I believe in all of those things. But I, at the same time, I, I feel kind of uncomfortable when I feel like there's a kind of ferocious conformity going yes. on. That you have to, you have to say it. Like every time somebody dies, you have to. I remember when Robin Williams died. Like I was, I was doing a bit of, and I was promoting some show I was doing or something I'd written, and I didn't know Robin Williams had died, and so I tweeted like something about some show I was doing, and I got like a kind of 
you know, 50 people immediately tweeted me basically saying, how dare you promote something when, you know, we're all so upset that Robin Williams has just died because I hadn't noticed that Robin Williams. And there's, there, there's that kind of conformity again, the kind of RIP conformity. Right. Like somebody does it, everybody has to do the RIP. And it's all good. It's all coming from a good place. It's all coming right. from a place that, that's teaching us how to care and teaching us how to like level the but playing field. But that's not because how do they know that you didn't know or how do they yeah. know whether or not you knew? Well, I explained like that of, I didn't know. But, but, but yeah, that's really common. I mean, you mm. can't be expected to be abreast of every single news story mm. especially something like a, a suicide something that comes on it's not like something you have to pay attention to like you know uh, a military operation that we're all aware of no this is a, a random celebrity decides to take his life how could you possibly yeah. be forced to know about that and and the problem is you know like on on social media we see ourselves as nonconformist but what this does is create a kind of a, a fearful conformist world where you have to say what everybody else is saying. Yeah, we're conforming to nonconformity. Yeah, exactly. it's like I would see people that were, um, you know, um, they dress like rebels, but they dress like the same rebels. They're typically unique, you know, yeah. like, you know, like you see someone who's got, you know, their, their hair's dyed pink and, you know, they don't give a fuck, but you don't give a fuck like everybody around you doesn't give a fuck. Like you're wearing a uniform, yeah. whether you know it or not, you look like someone's going to Catholic school. Like you might think that you're some sort of a, a rebel, but the real rebels are indistinguishable from everyone else and yeah. the way they dress and the way they, they look because they're just people. You know, we're, there are there are no real rebels. Yeah. Like a real rebel is just someone who has their own opinion that may or may not go with the, the standard opinion that we're being supposed to uh, that we're we're supposed to absorb. Yeah. But the, the idea of uh, conforming to nonconformity is so ironic, though. It's like the one thing that you are rallying against is the one thing that you don't even realize you are becoming. Yeah, and it's you know the 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 negative byproducts of all of this are, are big. It makes people fearful. Mm -hmm. It makes people shut the fuck up. Yes, um, and, and also what it is, it, it it declares war on human nature. You know, this is the reason why I really wanted to write the public shaming book. Because I, I felt like war had been declared on human nature. Uh -huh. Instead of trying to work out why people transgress, you know, in a sort of compassionate way, it's it just it just destroys people for transgressing. Um, and, and everybody transgresses, every human transgresses. And when we so ferociously destroy other people for transgressing, we're shutting off really significant realities about humans, which is the fact that if, if we try to understand each other, it would make the world more compassionate and we would understand why people transgress more. Yeah, and I think that what we're talking about too is you're, you're not talking about rallying against someone who's committing horrible atrocities. No. Someone who's committing crimes against humanity, torturing people, murdering people. You're, you know, you're talking about differences of opinion. Yeah. I mean, some people's transgressions are so serious, it deserves to overwhelm them yes. and they deserve to be defined by them. And we're all like sort of in, in commiserating and we're all sort of in, in agreement. We're all sort of bonding together on this. Like, hey, like as humans, we, we're, we're not going to tolerate this behavior because it's evil. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. But this is all a long way away from the question, which was about kind of hanging out in, with extremist yes. groups yeah. and so on. I mean, I discovered some things that I think people hadn't known at the time. I mean, one was that they were all conspiracy theorists. You know, that was what united the Ku Klux Klan with the Islamic fundamentalist group I hung out with called Al Muhajirun. I spent a year with this Islamic group called Al Muhajirun. You spent a year with them? Yeah. I became like their their chauffeur. They said to me, Omar Bakri, the head of the group, said to me after a few months, like, I have let you into my life. Uh, I've given you much. I want something in return. So I was like, what? And he said, can you drive me to Office World? Uh, uh, (laughs) I need pencils. Yeah. Would he need to get his photocopying done, like crush the pirate state of Israel? So I become like a chauffeur, start driving him everywhere. And... uh, yeah, that was awkward. Did you go home? Did you when you said you were with them for a year? Like, uh, how did no, you... I went home. He only lived like a couple of miles up the road from me. I so you would get up in the morning, bye, honey. I'm going to go hang out with yeah, the gonna go, Islamic fundamentalists. Going to hang out with Omar. He needs to buy some collection boxes for Hamas. He needs to needs to be driven to the cash and carry. Now that that's a very <laughs> scary organization. This was pre nine eleven. Uh, I mean, oh. all most of the stories I've told on like today are, are from my book Them, which was pre nine eleven. Um, and so less scary, like people thought they were ridiculous, like oh. not that much had happened at that stage. While I was there with them for the year, though, I mean, all you know, now so many like suicide bombers and so on. And so many journalists get killed. Yeah. That's, I mean, that could have been you easily if the, if yeah. you were dealing with a decade later. Yes. Or even a couple of... I mean, when was Daniel Pearl? That was pretty early, early on, stages of the Iraq War, right? Yeah. 2002 or three. maybe? So I was only, what, four years ago. That was the first one, man. That was the first one they had the video. Yeah. And I remember watching that online against my own better judgment. And has and, it haunted you ever since? Oh, you can never get past that one. And what's crazy is the one that one had such an impact, and then I've seen a, a few of them since then. And they didn't have nearly as much impact. It's like slowly but surely you get numb to it. You know, the first person, I've never watched any of these videos, but I was in Brooklyn and the taxi driver told me that he watches like all of them. (laughs) And and I said, I've never watched any of them. And he said, well, I'll tell you the one you really shouldn't watch, Daniel Pearl. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't watched any of them, so I don't know what he meant by that. There was a lot of um, conspiracy theories revolving that one as well. There was a lot of conspiracy theories that there was uh, that he was killed by the CIA in order to uh, keep people out of there and justify our attacks on Islamic fundamentalists and that they had killed him because he was going to reveal information about all sorts of different shit. And there was like a whole video dedicated to uh, describing why these yeah. people were not Arabs and that their accent was wrong, the, their size was wrong. They were built more like uh, American military people. And the, right. I mean, and like, then, yeah. this, the conspiracy theories, it's a weird thing. It's because very imaginative. Because there are though. conspiracies. Oh, there are. I mean, right? you know, I got chased away from Bilderberg. I yeah. snuck into Bohemian Grove. Yeah. There are conspiracies. Um, and there's also stuff like Operation Northwoods, where the Joint Chiefs of Staff had signed that the, the paper saying that they were going to try to uh, fake attacks on American civilians. They were going to mm-hmm. arm Cuban friendlies and attack Guantanamo Bay, yeah. all in order to get us to a war with Cuba. I mean, so it's not like it hasn't been proposed or it hasn't been even acted out, like what happened in the Gulf of Tonkin. I mean, there are real, real conspiracies that actually yeah. do happen. Even in its own little way, my, my book, The Minister at Goats, kind of proves conspiracies. It proves that, that they what were was trying to... What's the difference in your book? Sorry to interrupt yeah. you. 
Uh, what was the difference between your book and the the movie? Uh, okay, in the book, I mean, I never actually went to Iraq. The Ewan McGregor character that's kind of based on me goes to Iraq in the movie. In real life, I just hung around like military bases in America. So um, Fort Meade and Fort Bragg. Uh, at the end of the movie, Ewan McGregor manages to walk through a wall and I never managed to walk through. <laughs> uh, so that didn't happen. Well, the movie's kind of tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, the book's more serious. The book, the book starts off with the kind of comedy of all of this crazy stuff they were trying out in the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. like trying to kill goats just by staring at them, trying to learn how to be invisible, which, by the way, after, after, after a while they adapted. They went from invisibility to trying to find a way of not being seen. So I'm like, that's, you know, I said, like, camouflage. Like, no. I invent. I interviewed this guy who is uh, a military guy that was working on their remote viewing. Yeah, who who was it? I would have probably oh, met this I'm person. To remember his name? I'll Google is it. Ed Dames. Yes, that's oh who Ed it was. Dames. Okay, yeah. I met Ed Dames. And uh, he, he was... once psychically spied the Loch Ness monster, <clears throat> Loch Ness monster, and determined that it was a dinosaur's ghost. A dinosaur's ghost. Yeah, is that what he really said? Yeah, he's a character boy. Yeah, he was showing me pictures of his hot girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, a, he was one of the main one. Ed Dames, Joe McMonagall. Like all of these real life stories. Just hot. Russian. Yeah. Way yeah. over his head. <laughs> Dude was batting way over his head. So I met him. Maybe I met he remote him. viewed that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, if you're a psychic spy. I tell you what, though, being a black up military psychic spy isn't as glamorous as it sounds. Very stressful. Stressful. Plus, you've got your black ops. You've got no like budget. You've got no. You can't. You can't. You don't, you're not allowed a coffee machine. You have to bring your own coffee into work. Really? A, yeah. A couple of the remote viewers told me how annoyed they were that because they were black op, they had to bring their own coffee into work. <laughs> <laughs> plus, what does it actually mean to be a psychic spy working for the U.S. military? What it actually means is that, like, for twenty years, you go into some room at Fort Meade and try and be psychic it's kind of a shit job yeah um yeah. i interviewed another guy i forget his name but we actually tried it out and uh we tried to remote view things did he and, have any uh, did he get any luck no no it was me and this guy dj grothy who's a uh, oh yeah 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 he's a skeptic the, the randy from, guy yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. he's a, a debunker and a skeptic and yeah. he and i were on the same page we were like, you know, we we came up with some random shapes. We were supposed to envision this area, and then we went to the area, and he was trying to find hits. And I'm like, man, I mean, you're talking like angles, and like, you fuck, anywhere you go that's man-made, you're mm-hmm. going to find angles that are similar to this. And, you know, we picked out a few colors that were, you know, like super common. You find those colors. Yeah. I mean, you can get some really lucky hits, but think about all the shit that we were wrong with, and it's all about, like, it's just... Don't think too much. Just you know, let it come to you. Let it come. So you're supposed to scribble shit down, and yeah, uh, it's so mind-blowingly dumb. And the uh, Ed Dames guy was telling me that uh, they had actually had found Osama. I think it was Osama bin Laden. He was saying, "Sorry if I can't remember correctly, because it was all nonsense to me at the time." Yeah. But they didn't go after him because they didn't want to win the war because they didn't want the war to end right. because the people had a vested interest in keeping the war going. <laughs> And that was sort of his uh, idea behind uh, why this remote viewing wasn't successful. Okay. But he was citing all these different instances where remote viewing was successful. Yeah. And I was like, ooh, man, I don't know about all that. You know, uh, like, yeah. I remember it, one time they were looking for Noriega, mm. General Noriega, and the remote viewers were like called in to find Noriega. <laughs> and one of the remote viewers, it might have been Ed Dames actually, one of the remote viewers psychically divined that um, – 
Angela Lansbury knew where Noriega was. Oh, that bitch. Yeah. And <laughs> what I don't know, what I don't know is whether they actually ever asked Angela Lansbury or not. Oh. Um, what I discovered, though, I, if it had just been remote viewing, I wouldn't have wanted to, to have written the Men's Day at Goats because I, I found the remote viewing thing a bit boring. But then what I discovered just through asking people was there was all this other shit going on, like they were trying to fast for a month, try to burst clouds just by pointing at them, try to kill goats just by staring at them. And 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 that stuff was so fun to me. And and then I discovered <laughs> after like a year of, of like interviewing these guys, I discovered that like there was a line, I mean a really crooked line, but a line nonetheless between some of these crazy endeavours in the nineteen seventies and eighties and some of the kind of exotic in- interrogation techniques that were happening at Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib. So in the book, because some of the same people, like there was a colonel called John Alexander who was involved in like exotic, um, you know, sound blasting and all the non-lethal weapons. And uh, he's a guy you should have on your show, actually. Uh, he's an incredible guy. Um, so The Menester at Goats, the book, sort of starts funny and gets dark, whereas the movie kind of stayed funny and, and kind of didn't go into the darkness in that way. How much money did they spend on that remote viewing thing? That went uh, on for a long $20 time. $20 million, dollars, I think. <laughs> $20 million. <laughs> was there it, any one piece of evidence that they could point to that was uh, like... No, ever no. so often like a unit would get sick of it, like it was being run by the, um, I don't know, the, the DEA or, you know, the, the US Army or military intelligence, and then they'd get sick of it, and then they'd Learn move to remote some, viewing. Right. Is that Ed Dames? Yeah. Okay. That's not him. Well, it's not. No. It's no, that's not Ed Dames. It's his website. It's his website. Yeah. Right. He's an older gentleman than that. It ended up back with the CIA in 1995. The CIA's greatest weapon has the power to change your life forever. Right. Oh, so now you're using it. Like, And look, they have a live support gal. Look, she's pretty, too. <laughs> Need live support? Call this pretty girl. Why don't they have an angry black guy who could beat your ass? Nope, pretty white girl. Right. <laughs> Isn't that funny? It's like welcoming. I'm smiling at you. I have beautiful eyes. Right. Do you need live support? Call me, sugar. I'll show you how to find your dog. Here's something interesting. You know, the guy, <laughs> the first guy who ran the remote viewers back in the very earliest days of remote viewing was a guy called uh, Sidney Gottlieb. And he was the same guy who ran MK Ultra in mm. the 50s. Like, so all the kind of poisoning people, right. you know, spiking people's drinks with LSD, going off to Cuba to try and assassinate Castro by putting mm-hmm. like a bomb in his cigar or poisoning his wetsuit. So all this really dark CIA shit that was happening in the 50s was run by this guy, Sidney Gottlieb, and he was the same guy who ran the remote viewers in the 70s. Oh, so that's kind of interesting. Right? That is interesting. Yeah. Well, without a doubt, they've definitely experimented on people to try to find out whether or not they could control them. That's 100%. Oh, no question. Um, there's this other operation called Artichoke. I, I became friends with Eric Olson, whose father was Frank Olson, who's the guy who purportedly was given uh, LSD by the CIA and then jumped out of a window in New York and killed himself. Well, do you know that Ted Kaczynski was a part of the Harvard studies on LSD? Oh, really? Yeah, there, there was a German documentary called The Net that sort of highlighted this. Mm-hmm. And it was all about his participation in the LSD studies and how it pushed him off the rails. Right. And then he went fucking crazy and went went off to teach at Berkeley, saved all his money from teaching, and then went to live in the woods. Okay. And, and Ken Kesey too. Didn't Ken <clears throat> Kesey get his LSD from I that? do I do not know if that's yeah. the case. I mean, he might have been. Um, but uh, the t- Kaczynski thing is pretty well documented that he was a part of those studies. Right. 
And, uh, you know, I mean, I have a friend whose sister is out of her fucking mind. She went on uh, uh, a couple LSD trips and took way too much. Mm. And to this day, that was like seven years ago. To this day, she's all fucked up. Hmm. So it can happen, especially yeah. if you have, if you're mentally unstable to begin with and you get dosed and spiked, mm. you know, it's totally possible. Oh, yeah. I mean, people that have a, a, a slippery grip on reality. Any really traumatic experience and any real uh, anything that's like super perturbing to your state of consciousness has the potential to set you off the rails in a way that you might not be able to recover from. I mean, it is possible. Yeah. And they did a lot of fucking oh, experiments with shit. LSD with people. And there was worse shit than that. There was this thing called artichoke where they were like experimenting in. I, I believe this has all been verified. They're experimenting in, in getting people hooked on heroin and then withdrawing the heroin and making them do cold turkey as a means of getting information out of them. Wow. Yeah. And that was like related to MK Ultra. I mean, yeah, you talked about con- some conspiracies being true. MK Ultra is a conspiracy that was true. Yeah, there's plenty of those that are true. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, especially when you're dealing with the Cold War and this terrible, ter- uh, terrible thought that the Soviet Union was ready to drop bombs on your children any day of the week, mm. and that they're doing things like this, and that you know the Nazis had been doing things like this, and we know about all the experiments that the Japanese did and the rape of Namkin and the horrible things that the Nazis had done yeah. to the, the the prisoners of war. I mean... And weren't some American... Didn't MKUltra start... Or in the early days of MKUltra, some Americans were... Some American soldiers were kidnapped by the Koreans and then they were seen on TV like saying we renounce America and mm. they would try to work out like how the Koreans are, and my memory is really sketchy on this but then they try to work out like how the Koreans had managed to brainwash these three American servicemen so easily and that was one of the reasons why they started MK Ultra. I, I might be getting confused Well that's one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you about your work with extremists because I always wonder like is it appealing like when you're, I mean obviously you're not a white supremacist or an Islamic fundamentalist or anything, but when you're with them for a long period of time and you're embedded, uh-huh. is there any draw? Is there any uh, somehow or another? Is there any pull towards like thinking, an inclination? A, uh, is there an attraction to their ideology? I, you know, not never to their ideology, but what I did always like, um, like. Throughout my writing career, the times I'm, I'm at my happiest, times when I think a story is really working, is when something shifts in me. Like I spend so much time with conspiracy theorists, and then suddenly I'm being chased by the Bilderberg group, and I go fucking nuts. And like I become like paranoid. And that's what I know, like at the bottom of my brain, I know that like what's happening to me is terrifying. But the fact that I've gone through this really big change means it's going to be a really fucking good piece of writing. <laughs> and that happened in them. And it happened in the psychopath test too, actually, that I became completely drunk with my psychopath spotting powers. Like I went on a course to learn how to spot psychopaths and I got so drunk with my psychopath spotting powers that I changed. And like my friends were saying to me, like, you really changed. Peter Strawn, who wrote the screenplay for The Minister at Goats, told me he was concerned about me because I was so convinced I could spot psychopaths everywhere. What do you look for? Um, well, you know, nuances of language. Um, the first half of my book, The Psychopath Test, sort of teaches people how to spot psychopaths. And then the second half becomes like a cautionary tale to not get so fucking drunk with your powers that it turns you a little bit psychopathic. But like nuances of language... Um, 
you know, there's a, like a 20-point checklist where, where it all comes from. Lack of empathy, mm. lack of remorse. I, I went, I started meeting like CEOs and, and doing the psychopath checklist on them to see if it's true that you've, you're more likely to find psychopaths at the top of the tree than the bottom. Um, I'll give you one example. Is that true? Yeah, I think that is true. I, I think you are more likely to find psychopaths at the, at the top of the tree than at the bottom because capitalism rewards psychopathic behavior. But isn't the definition, too, that a psychopath is someone that has power, whereas a sociopath is someone like there's some sort of a... You know, the whole psychopath-sociopath thing, there's a lot very of... blurry. Yeah, there's a lot of debate out there as to... And different psychiatrists and psychologists will use the terms like... I mean, the upshot is that I don't think there's any real difference. Uh, uh, mm. Some people will say there's a difference um, because they'll, they'll bring their own sort of analyses to the situation. But, but in general, you're talking about a kind of a lack of empathy, a neurological lack of empathy, whether it's neurological or whether it's through childhood abuse. That's another big matter mm. of debate amongst those people. But, uh, but I'll give you a kind of classic example from the book. I, I, I went to meet this Haitian dictator called Toto Constant, in jail in upstate New York. I'd met him a few times before, um, but I met him in jail. And he kept on saying to me, I want people to like me. Like, I really want people to like me. He kept on saying that to me. So finally I said to him, isn't that a weakness, like wanting people to like you? Isn't that a weakness? And he said, no, 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 it's not a weakness. Because if you can get people to like you, you can manipulate them to do whatever you want them to do. Whoa. Yeah. So I said, so are you the sort of person who doesn't really feel like empathy? And he said, no, no, empathy is a weakness. So that, that's a, well, that's clearly telltale. But I've... I've um, well, I guess he figured like, fuck it, I'm in jail. Let's let the cat out of the bag. Yeah. I'm not getting out of here. And also, sometimes <laughs> they're like... Like I said this to an old KGB spy I met one time. Like I said, were you a bully at school? And he said, yes, 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 I was a bully. He said, he was English. Um, he said, I, I would like get up from behind a tree and I'd have like my bag would have bricks in it and I'd hit somebody over the head with Jesus the Jesus Christ. Yeah. And I said, he said, but I'd only get the bullies. I'd only get the bullies. So I said, and how did you feel about that? And he said, I felt good. And I said, and how do you feel now? Like all these years later, looking back on it, how do you feel now? And he said... I still feel good. And I said, so you're not the sort of person who feels empathy. And he said, you've really got to the nub of what kind of crank I am. He said, when a dog dies, like one of my dogs dies, I feel incredibly upset and I cry. But the human beings that I've hurt and killed don't feel anything. Whoa. Yeah. So if you can get them being honest about their absence of empathy. I don't want to hear that. (laughs) I mean, I do and I don't. I mean, I do, do, but I don't want to know they're around, man. Yeah. There's something disturbing about someone who's just not willing to ever join the community. You know, they live amongst you and they're just trying to manipulate. Predators and prey. You know, don't we see the world in terms of predators and prey and it would be foolish not to exploit weaknesses in others. You know, I think there really are psychopaths out there. There are some people. Yeah, yeah, that's I think a lot of people. The one thing I don't like uh, about 
the sort of psychopath-spotting world is that they, they're not interested to a large extent in what turns somebody that way because they're just really interested in the idea that there's, there's just another species out there. There's just this other species that aren't quite human. Um, they look human, but they're not. it's kind of like David Icke and the lizard, right? There's right. people out there who've adopted human form, but they're not quite human. Right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm really interested. There's this other psychiatrist I met called James Gilligan who basically says all violence is an attempt to replace shame with self-esteem. So these people were like so battered during their childhood, so humiliated, so abused, that they try and regain some self-esteem by committing violence onto other people. Hmm. All violence? I don't that, like all. I don't like statements that are so absolute. It is a big statement, right? But as a, as a kind of humanist, I I like that because it's giving some humanity back to violent people. It's saying, you know, this is, you know, it comes from a place of damage. Whereas the psychopath spotters will basically say, no, no, they're just, they're like another species. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. You know what, I think this, honestly, I think there's truth in both camps. Well, I think there's certainly some people that are like that and there's yeah. some people that are violent just because they're angry at stupidity or they're angry at aggression or they just need some release in their life and they're they're pent down with all sorts of stress and they can't handle it and they don't have an outlet yeah you know there's a lot of people that just they're lacking an outlet and i i, I liken them to overflowing batteries like yeah. a battery that like i, I think of a human body as your, your human body is designed to exert a certain amount of effort to put forth a certain amount of energy during the day and most people don't even remotely tap into their reserve of energy mm. they sit down in their body you know, just conforms to their office chair and they're there all day. And at the end of the day, they sit in their car or they sit on the bus or the train and they yeah. make their way home. In which case, they sit on the couch and they sit in front of the television. And their body just is constantly storing up stress. And it has this desire to exert energy and it's never met with uh, what it needs. It never, it never has its needs fulfilled, fulfilled. And so then you're in your car and you're in traffic and someone cuts you off and you're like, you fucking piece of shit. You have this mm. un unbelievably angry response because your your battery is essentially found uh, there's an opening yeah. you know it's like a a, a a hole in a water balloon should water just start squirting out of it it can't help it yeah. it's like so bent up with or pent up with pressure and if you instead of doing that to somebody in another car who can't hear you if you then go home and you do it on social media everybody hears you including that person and it can really damage someone yeah well there's certainly you you keep coming back to that it's, a, it's only because it's the most theme. recent book. So I'm <laughs> well, you're, about it a lot. It's on your mind for a while. Yeah. Hey, do you mind? Do, do you mind if I go? No, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a perfect way to end it. This uh, is this is a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I'm so glad that we did this because, like, as I say, for years people have like, oh my god, you got to go on Joe Rogan. Oh, I think now. we could have a hundred of these. I mean, yeah. any, anytime you're back, hey, in next town, time I'm back, we'll do it. When yeah. are you back again? Do you um, come around LA. Very it might often? be soon. Yeah, my son's thinking about moving here. So if oh, he does, okay, great. If he does, I'm not going to fucking leave. I can't be in another city to my son i hear you yeah yeah so okay well beautiful man well definitely either way one way or another when you're back in town let's do this again i really really enjoyed it i really and so your most recent book is so you've been publicly shamed uh and i'm sure it's available everywhere right like amazon and all that jazz i fucking hope so (laughs) bards and noble all that good stuff and uh john ronson on twitter j-o-n 
Uh, is there a J-O-H-N that's pretending to be you uh, and writing a bunch of evil shit that you're going to get in trouble for? Actually, there's, there is another drum that's not pretending to be me. I hope he's not shaming you. <laughs> we tried. <laughs> it's another story. Is it but, really? Yeah. Oh, uh, so, oh. yeah, John's on oh. Twitter. Ah, you follow John Rotson, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate Thank you, it. That was a lot really of fun. fun. Hey, thanks, Jamie. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into the podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you to our sponsors. Thanks to Me Undies, my favorite all time underwear. Go to MeUndies.com forward slash Rogan and get 20% off your first order and low flat rate international shipping. Ooh, thanks to NatureBox.com. NatureBox.com, the official snack provider of the Joe Rogan experience. Yummy snacks, and you can try them out for free. Go to NatureBox.com forward slash Rogan, and you'll get a free trial of their favorite snacks. You can't go wrong there, folks. And thanks also to Squarespace. Squarespace, the best fucking way to create your own website, even if you have no website creating skills. You can do it. Trust me. And you can sign up and try it out for free. Just go there and try it. You don't even have to enter a credit card. Once you decide that it is as awesome as it actually is, then you enter in the code Joe and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. And uh, as we said before, it's only eight bucks a month and you get a free domain name if you buy Squarespace for the year. You can't go wrong, you fucks. We're also brought to you by Onnit.com, a total human optimization website, O-N-N-I-T. Use the code word ROGAN, save 10% off any and all supplements. All right, uh, tomorrow the great Joey Diaz will join us. Fuck yeah, bitches. And uh, lots of more, lots of more coming, my friends. Uh, it is, um, today is the 5th of July excuse me, the 6th of July, Monday the 6th of July. If you're tuning into this podcast, uh, it means you made it through the 4th of July without blowing your fucking hands off. Congratulations. And uh, I sincerely hope that everything is groovy. Much love, my friends, and uh, I will see you quite soon, or you'll hear my voice or some shit. You know how it goes. All right, enough small talk, enough jabber, jabber, jabber. I could do this forever. All right, love you guys. Much love. Bye-bye. Big kiss.